Mark Douglas in that 9 a.m. update. A little brisk, so maybe not the kind of day you want to lay in the sun with your radio. Although, if that's your choice today, I say go for it. I even shot my daily show video outdoors today because when I emerged from the studio where I do the work to get ready for this show and then come into this studio, I had not yet been aware that the sun was out and I came out of the studio into the hallway and I almost sprinted all the way down the hall into the newsroom to the big windows where that blazing orange blob was in the sky. Thank the heavens that the sun, it's been about two weeks, December the 21st since we had any even hint of sunshine and further back to December the 15th since we've had a mainly sunny day in the region. I'm going to take it. I hope the sun is shining where you are, and I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. Ain't nothing better in the world, you know, than lying in the sun with your radio. If I may be so bold as to object with Lighthouse, some Canadian content music, by the way, to start the show today, there might be one thing just a little bit better than lying in the sun with your radio. Looks for a man, finds Matthews. Matthews gave the puck back to Riley. Riley to Marner, closing in. Down low, shot scores! Austin Matthews with the game winner! In overtime, his first game-winning goal of the season, and the Leafs come back to win this one 2-1. to one. Holy Mackinac, what a performance. Holy Mackinac, says Joe Bowen, a little AM on AM in the AM. As Joe said, goal number 30 on the season for Matthews, who continues to lead the league in that department. A little bit surprising, though, that it was the first 29 goals, none of which were game winners. (laughs) Doesn't matter. An overtime win for the Leafs, and the Leafs win 2-1 over Anaheim last night and you know that on the night before when the Leafs are playing it usually leads to a morning after when we get a little chance for some AM on AM in the AM. Welcome to the show for another day this Thursday the 4th of January. Phone lines are open the minute we start 519-570-2545 star 570 one 800 570 Email works as well. It's mike at 570news.com. And I mentioned a moment ago that show video that I prepare every day. Just to give you a little rundown of what's coming up on the show. That appears on our social media feeds. Uh, Facebook, which is facebook.com slash 
The Mike Farwell Show on Twitter or X at Farwell underscore WR. And it's the same on Instagram at Farwell underscore WR. It is nine minutes after nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten. Mike and All right, Farwell's five things that you might want to know for today, beginning with the westbound lanes of the 401 near Ingersoll. Yes, they are open again, have been for a little more than 30 minutes now, but had been closed for almost 11 hours after a crash late last night. I'll, I'll just remind you that some jurisdictions in North America have pretty strict rules around how quickly they clear things after collisions, and those regulations are far less time than 11 hours, but that's what it took to get the 401 westbound reopened near Ingersoll. Again, all lanes reopening uh, just around 8.30 this morning. Four pedestrians, number two of the five things that you might want to know for today. Four pedestrians suffered minor injuries after being hit by a vehicle last night. In Cambridge, happened in the area of Pine Bush Road and Conestoga Boulevard. And, you know, it struck me, sorry, no pun intended, but this comes not long after a string of three pedestrian vehicle collisions on Fairway Road in Kitchener. Those all happened back in December. So uh, a rather concerning trend from at least the seat that I'm in this morning. Number three, Wellington County OPP, as we keep it with the roads, Wellington County OPP laid 28 charges during their festive ride program this year, and that is double the number of impaired driving charges laid during the program last year. Number four, it's not Friday. I checked, I double-checked, I even triple-checked, just to be sure. But there is a Kitchener Rangers game, and it will be tonight at the Memorial Auditorium. We usually, I know you know this, we usually do those things on Fridays in these here parts, but it's just another reminder that we're kind of still in that weird, almost holiday-type week. So it's a Thursday night game, tonight, Kitchener Rangers taking on the Saginaw Spirit at the Memorial Auditorium. If you can't make it to the game, that's okay. Paul Fixter and I have got you covered right here on City News 570, our pregame show is getting underway at 6.35. And number five on the Farwell 5 list of things that you might want to know for today. That deal that brought an end to the public sector strikes in Quebec, remember they were ongoing rotating strikes and they were finally settled about a week ago. Well, the deal to get it done includes wage increases of 17.4% over five years. The province of Quebec had initially offered increases of 10.3 and 12.7 percent but those proposed wage increases fell flat and they finally settle on 17.4 percent over five years and those are your farewell show five things that you might want to know for today tell somebody in your sphere talk about it over the water cooler do with the information as you see fit but we wanted to let you know that as we got the show underway for another day. All right, here's here's something else I wanted to ask you about, actually, because I was out, and I mentioned this on Tuesday, coming back from the holidays, because even my phone had taken its own initiative to point out to me that I'd been doing a whole lot more walking, which is one of my absolute favorite things to do. And I like to think that the dog really enjoys it, too. Oh, 
Farwell's around. We're going to get more walking in during these days. And so we did over the holiday time. And on one of those walks between Christmas and New Year's, it was a, it was a rather pleasant day, well above zero. And a gentleman in my neighborhood was taking down his Christmas lights, like the outdoor lights. I thought to myself, well, that's early. Like, I'm the kind of guy that likes to hang on to the holiday for as long as he possibly can. Weird, maybe, nostalgic, probably. But taking the lights down between Christmas and New Year's, I thought, that, that's a bold move. However, as I commented to him walking past, he was taking advantage of a nice day <laughs> to get the job done. And it reminded me of the day in November that I hung the lights. I didn't turn them on, but I hung the lights at our house. It was so mild, I almost stripped down to a T-shirt. Instead, I just kept my sweatshirt on. But it was warm enough that day in November that I probably could have been up there on the ladder with just a T-shirt on. So if you can hang lights in almost T-shirt-like weather and take them down when it's also above zero, that's a pretty good year. Like, I can understand the motivation there. It still, though, seemed a little bit early. And then last night, I was out walking the dog again, and I saw one of the houses that we passed had a Happy New Year display in the window. I thought to myself, well, that's not a bad idea. Let's keep this, you know, let's keep the, the spirit, the idea going for a little bit longer. And I had said this at home, and, and I'm leaning in this direction, I am, of leaving the Christmas lights up and illuminated a little bit longer this year because quite frankly I think we got I think we got ripped off a little bit by mother nature don't the lights look nicer when there's a little bit of snow around them particularly if you have lights on bushes there's another house that we pass while walking where they've done a really neat job with their front bushes out front turning them into gnomes with the decorations on them and the, the little pointed hats I think it's pretty cute but wouldn't it look even cuter if there was a little bit of snow around and we've got some bushes out front that get lights strung around them and they'll just look better when there's some snow so i'm thinking well what did i put all this work in for if it doesn't get the full effect if it doesn't get to look as good as it possibly could so i was already thinking and that happy new year display in the window last night made me think about it even more not to mention look It's been so long, we finally see the sun today, but winter can be a little bit long in the tooth. It can be a little bit weary. Maybe some lights outside our houses, some colorful lights, can break up the gloom of January. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe until the end of January this year. Although I don't want the family to be embarrassed because we're the only house on the street that's keeping its lights not only strung, I'm sure as heck not taking them down till spring, but keeping them turned on. I'm thinking till the end of January this year. Is that acceptable or is that a neighborhood foul? And what's your rule? Do you take them down after New Year's? Do you take them down right after Christmas? Like when is the appropriate time to take down one's Christmas lights? And if one still has them up, is it okay to keep them lit? until the end of January, because that's what I think I'm doing this year. Would love to get your thoughts on this. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. I don't want to be a bad neighbor. 
I don't want to be a weirdo. Lights are on a timer. I'll, I'll pay the extra electricity for January just to brighten things up a bit. But if I'm off base, I'm sure you'll tell me. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. So I'm thinking I want to stay lit until the end of January. No, not that kind of lit. It's a dry January in the Farwell household. We are atoning for our holiday sins in that department. But I've been thinking, and I was thinking even before Christmas arrived, because we hadn't had any snow, that to get the full effect of the outdoor Christmas lights, there should be a little bit of snow. Not to mention, it's a pretty dark time of the year. So why not? Just in the spirit of keeping things a little brighter, a little more colorful, dare I say, even in January, a little more festive. What if I were to keep the outdoor Christmas lights illuminated until the end of January this year? I don't want to be the weird neighbor. I don't want to embarrass my family. I don't want to embarrass myself. But I'm thinking, why not? There's no hard and fast rule on this, of course, right? But I thought if anybody would tell me, that the idea is a little bit out there, it would be you. So is it okay to keep the lights? Look, everybody's keeping their lights up. If you're climbing ladders in mid-January to take the lights down when it's minus 15, you're a far better person than I am. I don't mean just having the lights strung. I mean having the lights turned on, illuminated on a daily basis until the end of January. Is that okay? When do you take yours down? Or when do you turn yours off if you have not already? 519 570-2545. Star 570-1-800-570-5715. Andre, you're a good friend. You'll tell me the truth, right? Mikey almighty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, and you very well said, sir, because um, every time I go to turn mine off, I'm just like, what am I doing? You know, the Christmas tree is down on January 1st, and the lights should be in the box but no because like you just described so perfectly that's what you always well do um is the spirit you know it's dark out there and the people go to work you know like our first liner um first line workers and stuff like that you know i mean like it's dark and just to leave my reindeers on especially uh, it gives that spirit of you know it's it's winter but so you said take the christmas tree down january the first is that usually what you do yeah, I put it on on January first, and I. So you've taken it down already. Sorry, you took it. You've taken it down already. Your Christmas tree. Oh yeah. Really? See, we just did our. We took ours down last night, which got me thinking about the outdoor lights. But. Um, yeah, but you guys are busy. Come on, <laughs> your wife is your right-handed man. <laughs> oh my goodness! Without her, nothing would get done. But uh, January the first, though, well, like, why do you why do you do it on January the first? Do you not like bringing it into the new year? Thirty days is enough. Thirty, okay. December first to January first, okay. Yeah, Christmas is like the calendar. You know, you, <laughs> one day at a time, and then that day's gone. You know, you you get ready for uh, February. <laughs> interesting. But, like, uh, yeah, I'm calling. Uh, interesting is the word. I'm, I'm calling because I forgot to say because I got so many things to say. But I'm going to keep it in one line. Your show. What's going on with Les David Drew? 
because 12 to 1 is us. And the Commissioner Crow and Sergeant Griffin, we didn't hear from them. And all the other people, uh, Philip, Philip and all that stuff that we're going to miss. So all right. what's happening about them, Mike? Thanks, Andre. I appreciate the call. Listen, you are about as loyal as the listeners get. And I appreciate that. So nothing is the short answer. David Drew, who Andre, by the way, thinks should be our next prime minister. Be careful what you wish for. I happen to know Drew a little bit, okay? But David Drew, who joins us weekly for Drew's Views, will continue to do that. When I talked to him about the changes coming to the show, he was open to just shifting his usual time. And so that's what we're going to do. But this is, again, that kind of funny holiday week. And there was no Monday show because it was New Year's Day. So I fully anticipate, not that I've confirmed with David yet, but I don't think he's going to reject our invitation. I fully expect David will be with us again next Monday, January the 8th. And that will be at 1130 on Mondays. David Drew will join us for Drew's views each and every Monday at 11.30. As for the police chief, Mark Crowell, and Staff Sergeant Scott Griffiths, who join us on the first Tuesday of every month for an hour of Ask the Chief, Andre's right, he's very perceptive. The first Tuesday of this month was actually this past Tuesday, the 2nd of January, our first day back to work for the new year. But because it was that, the first day back for the new year, and this funny, weird sort of holiday feeling, I said, you know what, would you mind? I asked if Waterloo Regional Police would mind postponing their monthly appearance until next Tuesday, January the 9th, just because that's when we're all going to be back more into the regular flow of things. And they were gracious enough to say, absolutely, we'll come in and fill that hour with you next Tuesday. So that will happen. And then... All of those regular features will return as they regularly happen. First Tuesday of every month moving forward, the police chief and Staff Sergeant Griffiths, who heads the Traffic Services Unit, will still be here between 11 and noon. We'll have our monthly mental health check-in with our friends at the Canadian Mental Health Association. We'll have our monthly housing segment with Philip Mills, uh, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. Our Friday for Roundtable is going to return as well, but not this week. I just didn't want to overburden our guests who get paid only in gratitude. <laughs> so I thought we'll give them the holiday break too. But the Friday for Roundtable, 11 until noon, is going to return next week. All of these things. The flip side will be back next week. You name it, it's all going to be here. It's not a whole lot different, just some cosmetic changes and some different sounds you hear from time to time. Simple as that. All right, it's coming up on 9.30, just a couple minutes away. Get you an update at that time from the City News Centre. And then let's move into this conversation, shall we? We know that there are an awful lot of international students being admitted to schools in Canada. Heck, to schools right here in the region of Waterloo, thank you very much. But did you know that nearly half of these students who have been accepted by Canadian schools aren't being allowed into the country right now? What gives? We'll find out when we have the conversation next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570.
The subject of international students and the number of them being admitted to schools in Canada is one that has been in the conversation quite a bit recently. Just a few weeks ago, some data was shared that showed Conestoga College in Kitchener, for example, uh, head and shoulders uh, above and ahead of all other academic institutions uh, in this province when it comes to the number of international students being accepted to the school. But something we have now also learned based on new reporting is that nearly half of the international students who have been accepted by Canadian schools are being rejected by visa officers. And some colleges in Ontario are seeing thousands of their would-be students that they have admitted turned away by these visa officers. It is a curious situation indeed. Accepted to school, but not yet allowed into the country. Earl Blaney is an education agent and policy researcher with the Canada Network and joins us to talk about it. Earl, good morning. Hi, Mike. Good morning to you and your listeners. Thank you very much for making the time because I know that you've been at this sort of work for quite a while. And when you hear of numbers like this, that almost half of the people who have been admitted to schools in Canada but can't gain admission to the country, what is this telling you? Well, I'm not surprised by it at all. And by the way, uh, I'm suggesting overall that's a good thing. Uh, you, you know, Conestoga College in particular, you know, uh, in 2021, uh, issued letters of acceptance to who knows how many people, but about 22,000 of those made it to the embassy, and about 40% were rejected. Fast forward two years, 2023, we moved from 22,000 applications for status in Canada as a student to 61,000 with a 51% rejection rate. So uh, if anyone's suggesting the other 51% should get through that are being rejected, who knows where those people are going to be living, for for example. But, uh, you know, what's happened here, and it's been a trend since about 2015, uh, from the period which I call the rise of the aggregator recruitment model. Uh, aggregator recruitment basically uh, is when schools have basically outsourced international student recruitment to these large online companies um, that have established a recruitment agreement with the school. Conestoga is a great example. 90% of their students come from education agents overseas. And these aggregator online recruitment things sublet their recruitment agreements to up to 10,000 different sub-agents overseas. These sub-agents have no direct connection with the college, but they're all making money recruiting for the college. Um, throughout Southeast Asia, uh, eight, uh, nearly 90% of international students from Conestoga come from the subcontinent of India. Uh, so everyone's an education agent. Everyone's making money sending these kids to school. The problem, though, uh, with the refusal rate is that because everyone can do this, uh, you know, uh, recruit uh, new students now, basically their, their competence in screening these students uh, or submitting uh, legal applications for status in Canada are quite poor. And so what's happened actually, in fact, is that admissions officers at places like Conestoga, where the approval rate for most international applicants is upwards of 95, 99% in some cases to, to, to some of their programs, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not screening students. 
properly at all. And so IRCC has had to step in and do this job for them. So that's kind of what's going on on the ground. Yeah, and when I think about that then, Earl, it it certainly doesn't sound as though with this sort of, you know, mass application or mass recruitment approach that we're getting the best and the brightest, so to speak. Yeah, I would say... uh, I would say that that should be a, a major concern, although it certainly is not for the colleges, evidently. They'll take whoever they can get, and which is what exactly is going on. When you look at, you know, why we're bringing in international students, you go back to the pillars of our policy, you know, uh, three things, you know, make money, uh, which has definitely been accomplished. I think Conestoga's uh, excess revenue over expenditures, last time I checked, was $100 million last report a year. Um, so that's been accomplished. International uh, cultural exchange, you know, we're diversifying classrooms and all that good, uh, good uh, internationalization stuff. You know, with 90% Indian uh, recruitment, that's not happening. And then the other thing is to fill labor market shortages that Canada desperately needs. We hear, like, you know, we're, there's skill shortages, breast milk rice. We need to incorporate these people into our economy. Well, kind of so good. Last data on that, uh, out of a survey of 10,000 international graduates uh, uh, in 2020, 2020, 2021, the school has only been able to confirm that out of that 10,000 graduate pool, 850 of them have found program-related employment either full-time or part-time. So, I mean, that's less than 10% confirmation rate that we're putting these international graduates into areas where they're where they're studying uh, and, and let alone uh, where we need them to be studying so yeah ma- major problems there this is not about this is no longer and no longer has been for five years this has no longer been about getting the best and the brightest it's about filling up colleges bank accounts at the expense of everyone else including the students including uh, local residents who are experiencing you know rent increases due to housing shortages and everything else uh, and the students themselves were investing so much money in this process with promises from these agents overseas, and it's coming to no fruitation. They're coming here, as you may know, Mike, for permanent residence, especially at the community college level. They're not going to Conestoga College because, uh, you know, they view it as uh, Cambridge or, or University of Toronto. That, that's not why they're going to that school. They're going to school to get a job and to, to transition to permanent residency. When international students graduate, they uh, obtain something called the post-graduation work permit. In theory, this post-graduation work permit will allow them to work in Canada, find jobs, and, and, and integrate into permanent residency status. Unfortunately, in 2020, sorry, 2021, 550,000 uh, new international students came to Canada. In that same year, through the post-graduation work permit, out of the... Uh, only 55,000 of them. So less than 10% of the incoming numbers transition to permanent residency. So that's... Uh... We just lost our connection. Mid-sentence. And the math was pretty easy there. I know Devin, our guy on the other side of the glass, is going to ring back through to Earl Blaney and so that we can continue this conversation. Because obviously... One of the other things I'm I'm really curious about here is where the onus of responsibility lies in all of this, right? And and I suspect a, at least some of that responsibility lies with the educational institutions themselves. We've got our connection uh, reconnected to Earl. We we just lost you, Earl, as you were talking about that less than ten percent 
of all those who had come in in 2021 managed to land permanent residency? Exactly. Less than 10 percent. And unfortunately, surveys conducted by IRCC themselves, the Department of Immigration, shows that 90 percent of incoming community college students are that is their goal. That's why they're investing money here. Right. So, I I mean, you got a big program integrity problem. By my count, you've got over a million international students or international graduates in Canada right now who intend to transition to permanent residency, who invested their cash in doing so, who have no little or no chance at all of making this transition. Good luck getting these folks to leave because a lot of them have also brought their families. They've uh, liquidated farmlands. They've liquidated businesses back home to get here. How are we going to get them out of here? Where does the onus of responsibility lie in all of this? Is it on the schools and, and who it is they are admitting? Is it on these visa officers who might let too many through? Like, or is it a combination of both? No, I think, you, you know, you got to follow the money. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the money is going to the college. They should be responsible for sure. To be clear, I think, uh, as Minister Mark Miller from IRCC, uh, Department of Immigration, has made clear, you know, there is a jurisdictional conflict here at, at a constitutional level. I mean, we have uh, provinces being in control of education. We have a split immigration duty between the federal and provincial government. But it seems like Mark Miller has vetted his legal grounds, and he's made it very crystal clear to these colleges at this point. You guys need to shape up and be more responsible, more ethical. Uh, look at the long-term, not short-term gain, or we are going to come down on you and use our constitutional powers to control immigration to limit numbers. And that, unfortunately, is exactly what needs to be happening at this point. We cannot continue to grow an international student program 30% per year, year after year after year, with the conditions that await these students in Canada and the effects caused by this. Yes, So uh, action has to be taken. Looks like they're thinking it over. We do uh, wish them Godspeed on that. Yeah, because the the implications here are broader than just academic, aren't they? There is increasing pressure on the communities where these schools exist because of the sheer number of new people that end up in the communities. Absolutely correct. And unfortunately, all of our research points to the fact that there is little or no consultation going on between the cities and the colleges at all. In fact, it seems that colleges feel like They can do whatever they want, and that's exactly what they've been doing. Uh, So the federal government is going to have to step up here and act and make sure that, uh, you know, this gets reined in. How how does the federal government do that then? Is it is it uh, you know reducing the number of people that can apply for permanent residency? Like, where do we go for solutions here, Earl? Sure. Well, I think the federal government has some options. They've laid out something called a recognized institution framework. So that's basically going to review um, data for schools, like how much housing, how much support do you have for your students? How many applications are you bombarding the embassy with that are are, are not getting through quality-wise, right? And and so the the idea is to kind of rank these schools in terms of efficiency and effectiveness and and viability for an international, uh, proper international student experience. And so they're supposed to come up with that next year, probably, you know, it's the government of Canada, so who knows when. But one thing that they should definitely be looking at doing right now is limiting the volume of international student applications considered for approval or refusal by uh, by the DLI, by this college itself. Like, you know, Conestoga College bombarding 
the Canadian embassies abroad with 61,000 applications. Only half of them are viable. Half, only half of them are getting through. I mean, you can imagine the resources that waste, the, the, the frustration it caused to try to get the best. How does U of T feel about that, right? I mean, they're, they're bringing in engineers. They're bringing in really high-quality uh, post-grad, you know, employment prospective students. They can't get them through the embassies because there's a haystack there, and they're not able to get them through. How many, you know, how, how, who, who is applying to Conestoga College? I mean, these are business, business, business students, right? With the impression that they're going to come here and run business, stand up working at Tim Hortons. That's what happens. It strikes me that there are two parts of Canada's reputation at stake here. One is its academic reputation, and the other would be what has long been held as almost the model for immigration with our points system, etc. And I think the reputation in both of those files is is really under threat here. But when you're when you're uh, when your international admissions office allows ninety nine percent of applicants to be approved to come to a college from overseas, there's a huge integrity problem. That does impact Brand Canada at the federal level. I think that's exactly what the Canadian government, IRCC, is worried about. I mean, Canada, I mean, top 50 schools, we have three or four, maybe five. I mean, we, we don't have Oxford. We don't have uh, Cambridge. We don't have uh, Yale. You know, these, these are not uh, the schools that, that are coming to. But, you know, now we have ABC College, uh, you know, somewhere in GTA, that gets a thousand student applications a year. Not a, not a single domestic student has or ever would set foot in that college. Yeah, but they're full. They're full with international students, which tells you how strong the the misguided marketing is from these education agents overseas. I mean, the quality of education at some of these schools. I mean, most some of these programs are fully online. The kids don't even go to these schools. We are aware of colleges in Canada right now selling degrees to to kids who have never even attended those schools at all. And we're not, we're not the only ones aware of it. The Ministry of Colleges and Universities is aware of it. IRCC is fully aware of this also, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's a huge integrity problem, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. You, you talked about this explosion, really, in the past five years, Earl, and you've been at this work even longer than that. Was this inevitable? Did you see this coming? I did see it coming. I saw it coming exactly when IRCC added education points to our express entry system. So as you mentioned in your comments, our economic class immigration system is largely a points-based system, not all streams, but most uh, most of our intake is through a point-based system where immigrants compete against immigrants based on biodata points, language, previous work experience, education. And so when they added points for Canadian education, it became clear that that would be a great advantage to moving your score up in the system. You can also access the post-graduation work permit, which allows you to gain skilled work experience in Canada post-graduation. Also worth points, yes? So it became really clear. Like, when you look at business investment visas, you know, starting at the lowest, I think, is about $350,000 to qualify for permanent residency. Well, you know, a one-year, two-year college program at a total of twenty dollars to $40,000 that becomes a lot more attractive to immigrants overseas. And that's what happened. And so it was clear that this was going to happen exactly when they add points for international education in 2014. And it did. That's when this explosion started. Do you have any hope of us stemming the tide? 
Well, I think the, the, the tide will be stemmed because either the federal government is going to take action now or, or in the very immediate future to save what's left of Canada's program integrity and reputation overseas, or that that problem with reputation overseas is going to sink this program. It's going to collapse because the students, you know, you learn way more about this than uh, by reading Indian newspapers than you do the Toronto Star, put it that way. So when you when you read the Indian newspaper, Times of India, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, packed out of the bag, students are starting to understand, like, look, this is not what this is being made out to be, right? I mean, more and more and more, they understand that you're not going to graduate from uh, Conestoga College and walk into a $70,000 a year job. You are more likely to walk into McDonald's, yeah, post-graduation. So I think, you know, as that, as that perception becomes clearer and clearer in overseas media, yeah, we're going to have a major problem here. This system is on the brink of collapse. Earl, I really appreciate your perspective on what is an incredibly important story. Thank you very much for making time for the show today. My pleasure, Mike. Happy New Year to all your listeners also. To you as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Earl Blaney is an education agent and policy researcher with the Canada Network. I think he spells it out pretty clearly how we got here. And I, his optimism strikes a chord with me that we will make the necessary changes to stem this tide because there is a reputation at stake here. And, and I believe it's our reputation both academically and our reputation for having one of the best points-based immigration systems in the world. And I think both of those reputations are at stake in what it is that we're seeing. And and just consider, you know, we've talked so much in recent weeks about the sheer number of international students being accepted to institutions here in Canada. So many of them, tens of thousands at Conestoga College in Kitchener, where the numbers dwarf all others. And now, thanks to new reporting, we learn that nearly half of these students who have been accepted by Canadian schools are being turned away by visa officers. So the school says, yep, you're welcome to come. And immigration says, hang on a second, (laughs) you're not getting through. It it just as another layer to a really challenging story. We'll take a break, come back with your calls. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. The school has only been able to confirm that out of that 10,000 graduate pool, 850 of them have found program-related employment either full-time or part-time. So, I mean, that's less than 10% confirmation rate that we're putting these international graduates into areas where they're studying and let alone uh, where we need them studying. I had a conversation not long after we reported on the sheer number of international students being accepted at local institutions about that very thing. The point was made to me that there is a high success rate in job placement post-graduation, something like 75% success rate. And the first question I asked was, in the field of study? Or just a job. That's Earl Blaney, an education agent and policy researcher with the Canada Network, joining us to talk about new research that tells us almost half of international students who have been accepted by Canadian schools are not being allowed into the country. Visa officers are stopping them at the border. Let's go to the phones and hear from you on this. Kevin, good morning. 
Hello, good morning, Mike. Uh, that, that's a great subject, and I'm really happy that your program is putting a, a, setting a light on that. Um, I've owned a business for over the last 31 years in the heart of the Conestoga College in Dune, and I have probably for the last 10, 15 years employed quite a number of the international estate who came, worked for me, and then and they, and they leave. So I'm witnessing everything, like, right there, that exactly what's happening every day, how many of them are coming and, like, begging. Like, when I'm begging, I'm like, I mean, begging for a job. I mean, and then uh, it kind of breaks my heart that how they come here unprepared and unplanned and, now they're just willing to do any job, you know, they can do that. And it just comes to the bottom uh, of the po- point, which is the colleges are just advise, like inviting people. It's like you have a party and you only have like a, enough food for like 30 people, but there are people outside your venue and they're charging people and inviting them, you know, to your party. But, and when they come into your place, there is no food for anybody. There is no cake for anybody. But anyway, there's just keep you know, bringing people to your venue. So that's what's going to happen. One day this balloon is going to explode. And and I'm witnessing that some of them are struggling to pass these courses. I talk to them, and they tell me that there are ways that they can get the answers. And then when I was thinking to myself, okay, what, what if you even pass? You cannot get a job. And that happens. You know how many of my employees who graduated, they came and they said, well, I got a job, and they were happy, and guess what? Four months later, they came back to me. They said, well, they didn't keep me at a job. Can I have my old job as making food or delivering food or things like that? And I'm like, what happened? Then I'm thinking to myself, maybe the way they graduated, they were not qualified for the job. They just got the mark however they can just to, just to get there. And then they cannot find a job because they're not doing it right and I talk to them, and some of them, are asked, when they come back to me, I say, why? So, well, I went to the job, you know, this company hired me, but, you know, I couldn't do the job. I'm like, why? If you're graduated, you must be capable of doing that. So, trust me, five years, as Earl said, this is something that we're going to see an explosion of um, people that are just not capable of doing the job, but they need a job. They all buy cars. They all buy new cars. And you know, when, I came, when I immigrated as a refugee, like, 38 years ago, uh, it took me like maybe five years to six years before I buy, buy my first new car. And now I see them, as soon as they come in, they buy cars, and they come in asking, begging me, oh, I have to pay my car payment, my insurance payment. And I'm like, who's advising you guys to buy these new cars when you have not even graduated? So there is a system down there that is just, I think, illegally bringing people inside and then this school, a student and the family, they have to sell their, as you say, their farms or their uh, properties. And when they come here, at the end, they have children here who are graduated, but they're not capable of doing the job. So Kevin, a really I, sad I, story. I see it every single day in my store. I appreciate that. I got to, I'm way late for news, but thank you for sharing your firsthand experience with this. There's no question in my mind that these students are being misled by the agents who are recruiting them. We're going to get you to the uh, City News Centre for an update. And then where should the new hospital be built in this region? A local businessman makes a compelling case for a place you know pretty well. We'll talk about it next on the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
it is a question that I hope is on your mind at least a little bit. The question being, where are we going to build this brand new hospital for the region of Waterloo? And and the key, this is why I hope it's on your mind, because it's not just building a new hospital that we might break ground on and then get built in the next 10 or 15 years. It's how does that hospital serve the community for generations after it's built. Here's what we know right now. There is a selection committee. They reported not long before Christmas that they have now arrived at a list, and it's a short list, of three potential sites for the new hospital. Thing is, we don't know what those sites are. However, my next guest has a pretty good idea of where he thinks the new hospital could be located. Josh Hillis joins me in studio. Josh is the founder and CEO at Assemble Technologies, Inc. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I I love where your head is at on this, even though I confess to two things. One, I have a real soft spot for the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. Part of my work is there. And two, I, I thought that the site was a little bit small for what the selection committee is looking for. But tell me why you think the odd is such an ideal location for our new hospital. I think uh, the, the first thing we, we identified was originally the, the selection committee was looking for 100 acres or more. So that's kind of been the standard for the last 20 years. But as development and sprawl grew, 100 acre sites are hard to find, at least hard to find within close proximity to the biggest balance of the population. So the idea of, of obviously finding a new home for the odds somewhere downtown where it makes sense to drive economic activity and stimulus where we're getting the most density being built because there's 10,000, 12,000 new homes that are going to be built as far as housing units downtown over the next 10 years. So we've got a great opportunity to bring that type of function there where opening up the odd site makes sense. So what we did was try to understand other hospitals that are either being built, have been built, or in the process, and try to understand what they're using as far as footprint, especially big cities like Mississauga that will have the largest hospital in Canada built on 10 acres, as well as uh, the Montreal Super Hospital. So we looked at Montreal as our kind of our, our best guess as as to how you could take multiple different services, so five different services in Montreal were brought together in one single spot, and they were able to build a million and a half square feet, five divisions into one single spot on 43 acres beside what looks like our, our expressway. So when we saw that, we were able to compare that the odd site without the armory is at about 44 acres, and with the armory puts it around 48 or 49. It's just a hair underneath that, that cutoff point. And so we felt that that was still valid. It was still a reason to go out and speak with guys like Barry Vibranovic, uh, the mayor, and uh, people at the city of Kitchener to understand whether this is even possible. And if we can create this opportunity, what would it potentially look like? I really like what you're talking about, Josh, around the Montreal example because of those sort of satellite buildings that are a part of the overall hospital. Because in my mind, and that's why I sort of emphasized at the beginning of this, we have to be talking about something that's not just built tomorrow, but serves this community for 50, 100 years in the future. And and so maybe it's more than just a, a place where you go for, you know, Critical care, for example. Absolutely. And so when we, we when you consider the idea that, you know, if St. Mary's, because it's the oldest that we have, uh, is, is going to be, you know, repurposed for most likely housing, that'd be amazing. Um, you look at the Grand River site and the original plan that we had heard, at least kind of in the outset, was that they would keep the vast majority of Grand River and build a, a second hospital, which kind of feels like you're only replacing one with the other. And instead, we could be combining these services into one single unit because 
that Grand River hospital site's incredibly valuable. That's where density could be being built. So we, we figured they could get between six and 7,000 new units on those sites if they were able to amalgamate a parking lot next door and move into that hospital site. So like you said, bringing all those services into under one roof and one centralized location just made a lot of sense. Plus the location where the odd is today would actually help us reduce ambulatory times too. So we, we took a look at every different kind of small community plus different communities within our region and timed what it would take to get ambulatory services to single points. So the current hospitals, projected hospitals up near the university, all of those things into consideration to be able to look and say what makes the most sense. And then we had uh, a really uh, high quality uh, transportation consultant take a look at this and we're able to validate and can support our, uh, our kind of our thoughts on what that would actually mean. You mentioned up by the university. That is another area, lands at the University of Waterloo, that I have at least heard bandied about with some degree of enthusiasm mm-hmm. for a potential site. How do you feel about that possibility? I, I, that was the one site we knew most likely was going to happen. So it's already had what most likely was a plan kind of set in motion, you know, a number of months ago, even potentially years ago, just to try and understand where the hospital might go in the future. But I think it struggles with two things. One, it's it's so deep inside the city that when we talk about ambulatory care, how do you get the most people to the to the thing that they need the most, the quickest? And when you start to build it, I think a little bit more on that landlocked position where it's in it's on Westmount plus just um, I forget the name of the street where the the uh, YMCA is, but. If you park it in there, now you're trying to think about how do you get ambulatory services across, in some cases, LRT lines as you're coming across, uh, you know, university, uh, depending on which way you're coming up westbound. There's just, there's complications to it that we thought would just preclude it, but because it fits the 50-acre size, it's obvious that it's going to be considered. Do you have any insight at all to the sites that the selection committee has on its shortlist? We don't know specifics. Um, but because we've been so tightly kind of, you know, participating in this process, we know that there was some consideration for a site near um, St. Jacob's, so up near the market. Obviously, that's large, you know, spaces of land. Again, that puts it so far away from the balance of the of the, uh, of the population. So when you start taking services that far out, sure, we might build sprawl around it over time, but the density is the part that's happening right now in downtown. So whether it's downtown Kitchener where the density is growing or uptown Waterloo or eventually across the you know Ottawa Street Corridor, we look at all those things as factors of that's where the, the balance of the population is. When you push it out to St. Jacob's, it makes it very difficult to get to. So we just thought that that would probably be considered, but not really, uh, maybe not necessarily in the running. But the, the thing that we don't, because we don't know, all we can do is focus on what we do know, which the auditorium is so close to size. How can we get it to be at least considered as part of the other three sites? I think we have an opportunity to at least open that that conversation up again. Um, and then, again, take not getting too you know too detailed on the sites because we don't know enough. We have to just kind of keep our eyes on the prize, which is can we move the odd? That's the first piece that has to happen. And if we could do that piece, whether the odd site becomes a, a hospital lands or development lands for for new housing. It, ultimately, the city of Kitchener will win. Because you talk about that, and I know it's somewhat tangential, but you, you did make a pretty compelling case just earlier when you talked about the intensification that's happening downtown and how a new arena slash entertainment venue would fit in nicely there. And I think that's part of the argument here, right? As much as I personally, and I know others do, love the hockey arena as it is, 
we could stand for something a little bit more modern for our community. Absolutely. And, and when you look at communities across Canada, there's this has already started to happen. So places like Kelowna and Moncton and Halifax have already completed these types of, you know, suburban barns moved down into the urban areas. So they've already completed those things. There's a number of other pro, uh, places like Saskatoon. Sudbury and Ottawa, they're all going through the process themselves right now. So we're seeing that happen as as these cities start to grow. And as we, as a community, look at a million people in the future, it sounds like we might be there by 2040. We better be prepared for what that, that eventuality will look like. And I think by thinking a little bit more creatively and looking at this, this is not just healthcare, it's housing, and then it's the entertainment and economic stimulus. It's not just one thing that does one thing. It's one thing that does three uh, or achieves three different results, I think. Do you envision, Josh, anything around the hospital besides the hospital itself? I'm, I'm thinking med tech, for an example, or, you know, rehabilitation facilities. Like we've got a, a cardiac rehabilitation facility that's part of St. Mary's right out here at a medical building on the boardwalk. We've got in downtown Kitchener, uh, the School of Pharmacy for the University of Waterloo. And there is some land, albeit I think it's landlocked on the Bram Street Yards and it's a small site, but you could have a hospital closer to some other sort of satellite campuses. Do you envision anything beyond a hospital on site? I think that really is left up to the people that will make those decisions. We're really just three community members that saw an opportunity to try and show people there was a different type of opportunity in front of them rather than looking at only blank slates as being your only opportunity. Kind of brought us to this idea. Um, but really when you start to, we ask the questions about, you know, what the community needs, the healthcare part was obviously huge. The housing part is right in our faces, staring at us every day that we need to solve and that there's economic development that needs to happen downtown in order to kind of liven things back up again. Obviously we've got a big change that has happened since having the pandemic. So we're looking for opportunities to be aspirational in our, in our thinking to your point, we've got to think about the next 50 years in, in the future and how that, how we serve that community in that, that time frame. Any indication at all that the city of Kitchener would be a willing partner in such an endeavor? The city's been super supportive as far as being able to kind of bounce ideas off of, bring information. They give us feedback and all. It's been a, it's been a really good working relationship to be able to get that information. For us, it's to make sure that we've got something solid, that we have the right stakeholders in place ready to move on something like this to be able to get the city, uh, you know, to, to work together with us. But, you know, ultimately, this is really just us trying to create the path and then bring in the right people as we, uh, as we you know, as time, you know, comes on. What makes you so passionate about this? Well, I, so I, so both me and my partners, Melissa and Ryan, we're all, we're, we're all new to the city. Um, if, uh, when I say new to the city, I've been here for 13 years. Melissa's been here for 20, and Ryan closer to 25. And so we're all, we're all new members that love this place and want to see, you know, what the future holds for us here. So why not get, you know, involved? And why not trying to create some opportunities rather than sit around and wait for someone else to create them? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very interesting time indeed. Uh, are you, are you waiting, uh, you know, with bated breath for the decision from the selection committee? Well, at, at this point, there's not much we can really impact at this point. So really our focus is hundred percent on, can we get that auditorium into a, find the right spot, the right partners and, and the right opportunity to, to get the odd downtown. Once that happens, then, 
whatever happens on the odd lands is is really, and I guess, up to the timing or opportunity. What what would you need for that to happen? If you get those right partners, like what steps might be involved to get the odd downtown? Well, we you know securing securing land, securing financing. Those are obviously big parts of what has to happen here. But we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what that process looks like and and trying to find the right people to put in place for that. Uh, at least to try and pull the the teams together, so to speak, because we're re- we're just three people with with a really interesting idea with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, time and effort and focus on this. But that's only three people. We need to bring on a, a much bigger team to be able to put this on. I had initially thought, in fact, it goes way back before there was even talk of a hospital, uh, a new hospital in this community. Somebody had suggested to me, somebody in the tech community had suggested this very thing. The odd with the expressway access, et cetera, would be the ideal site. Let's just swap. At the time, he proposed Grand River Hospital where it is today, put the new arena there, and bring the hospital facility to where the auditorium sits. And and I've, I've had that in the back of my mind for far longer than this conversation around a new hospital was even happening. And then I was a little bit disappointed to hear, oh, it just doesn't meet the selection criteria size of 50 acres. Yeah. And, and that's the unfortunate part. I think uh, City of Kitchener had, has lots of different sites that might be 40 acres and above, but couldn't have anything considered because it didn't hit that 50-acre threshold. So right. I think uh, considering that Montreal was able to do it on 43 and that Mississauga will do it on 10, really it's just it's it's only a limit of our own imagination to be able to say that we can build better services on a site that might be, you know, two acres smaller than the, than the cutoff point. You make a very compelling case, and I appreciate you making time to come into the studio today to talk about it. Thanks, Thanks for being so much. here. Appreciate it. Josh Hill is joining us in studio, the founder and CEO at Assemble Technologies, Inc., but more to the point, somebody who passionately believes that new hospital could go at the site of the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We asked the questions about what the community needs. The healthcare part was obviously huge. The housing part is right in our faces and that there's economic development that needs to happen downtown in order to kind of liven things back up again. So we're looking for opportunities to be aspirational in our thinking. We've got to think about the next 50 years in the future and how we serve that community in that time frame. Josh Hillis is the founder and CEO at Assemble Technologies, Inc. But more to the point, as he said to me today, he's just one of three people who think they have a compelling case for the new hospital to be built where the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium currently sits. Where would you put the hospital? The Site Selection Committee has a short list, three sites. As we understand it, each of those sites will have to be 50 acres or more in size because that's part of the criteria. The auditorium site could get, if you include the armory, up to about 47, 48 acres. So right in the ballpark, but not over that 50-acre criteria, suggesting that it may not be on the short list. But it certainly is a compelling case for a variety of reasons. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. As I said during that conversation with Josh, I had heard well before the province even said there's going to be a new hospital built here, get to work on it, we struck a committee, all this different stuff, that the auditorium site would be ideal for a new hospital. And and I still think it's got to be a, a really, really strong candidate. However, other candidates have emerged, including at the University of Waterloo, which I'm hearing a lot of buzz about. 
I'm still not unconvinced that lands out by the airport in Breslau will be ignored entirely because geographically that gets you a little bit closer to Cambridge, for example, and we do want this to serve. It's a new regional hospital, not just a new Kitchener hospital, even though it is replacing existing hospitals in Kitchener. Let's go to the phones. Nathan, what do you think? There's a building going down at Northfield, I believe, kind of by the mall there. Um, it was the old uh, rug, uh, the crew. Oh, uh, yeah, not, not far from the expressway off-ramp, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, why not, it, I, don't, I don't know if that was on the shore list or was on a list at all, but that would be a, a prime area um, for the hospital uh, because of the off-ramp, the, the highway there, um, and you could you could easily build um, well, not easily, but you could possibly build uh, a couple more ambulance uh, centers around that area. I know there's a lot of fire stations and such uh, already there, but that would be a great uh, area to uh, to put the hospital. Nathan, appreciate the call and another interesting idea. I I admit I was frustrated when the quote unquote news release, and I say quote unquote because. What information did we really get from the site selection committee? We've got a short list of three, but we're not telling you what those three sites are. But I understand that, right? <laughs> for for competitive purposes, obviously, you don't want to start driving up land values, et cetera. So I, I understand why these things have to be kept under wraps. I, I might have been inclined to just keep them under wraps then entirely, but I, I suppose by letting us know there's a short list, it's showing, it's reminding us, hey, this work is happening the work is in progress, and here's where we're at in that progression. So it's going to be interesting. Phil sends me an email to Mike at 570news.com, says the Rockway Golf Course should be considered for a new hospital. Very accessible by the highway, especially if membership and the demographic is shrinking. Uh, get in line, I will say to that, Phil, for Rockway Golf Course being coveted land in Kitchener. A lot of people want that to be opened up for building housing as well. Uh, I'm not sure it's in the cards. I don't I don't know that Kitchener wants to uh, relinquish the asset, but we shall see. Very interesting times and a compelling case made for the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium as a potential site for a new hospital. All right, we're going to get you an update from the City News Center, and then tis that time of year, right, when you make the resolution to, oh, I don't know, Get in shape, exercise a little bit more. Would you consider adding weight training? You want to pump some iron as part of that exercise program? We'll tell you why it's not such a bad idea coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. You know that well-worn phrase, right? Because it's well-worn. Resistance is futile. I say that every time there's a cold beer in the fridge or a piece of chocolate lying around the house. My ability to resist that temptation is pretty much futile. But in this case, uh, we're not talking about that kind of resistance or self-control. The resistance in this case is resistance exercise. You know, where you're putting resistance on your muscles. You're actually lifting some weights as opposed to just going for a run. Uh, 
or something like that. It's not futile at all resistance exercise, or at least so we are told. And I'm really happy to be able to have this conversation as we get into a new year. Maybe some of us are getting into a new exercise program, and maybe this is a good way to remind you that there's more than one way to gain all of the benefits, including cardiovascular benefits, from different kinds of exercise. Stuart Phillips is a professor of kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health at McMaster University, joins us for a conversation. Stuart, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks very much for not only making the time, but for writing this piece that caught my attention at the conversation, because I've long believed it with really no research to back it up. I'll be honest about that. But I've, I've read an awful lot of literature over the years that, that leads me to believe that weight training is at least as effective as cardiovascular training. So let's start there. I mean, h- how is that the case? Yeah, I think as the article details, we have a lot of history around aerobic exercise. We've known for a much longer period of time that how good it is for us. And we're probably only now beginning to realize with a little bit more research what, uh, as you said, resistance exercise or weightlifting or, you know, trying to get a strength training, call it whatever you like, um, can do for your not only your strength, obviously, and your muscles, which I think most people say, well, it's just making you big and bulky, um, when actually, when you do it, it, it has the same types of health benefits as aerobic exercise. And probably as we get older, it's going to be a, a really important part of uh, staying active and mobile. So you talk about, you know, getting bigger, getting bulky, and I, I can't help but wonder if it really wasn't a case of bad marketing. If we were trying to market weightlifting, I, I think back to the Arnold Schwarzenegger pumping iron Mr. Olympia days, and that's kind of the mindset that we get, whereby anybody can hop on a bicycle or go for a jog, right? Exactly. And I think it's just the easier sort of default alternative when somebody says, you know, you need to exercise more and uh, not to say anything bad about going out for a walk, which is a tremendous form of physical activity, lots of great benefits. But, you know, strength in what we call muscular power and some of the activities that we're going to do when we get a little bit older are really those are the things that are going to limit you. But as you say, uh, if the image you have is of Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, to take you back to the the, the real incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, uh, <laughs> nobody gets that big. I mean, those guys, uh, they were doing a few other things as well, but uh, they lifted some pretty heavy weights and uh, much beyond what... Uh, what mere mortals like myself would be lifting, for sure. And I will include myself in the even Uh, more mere mortal group, Stuart, but (laughs) can anybody, much like we've long said, you know, the 20-minute workouts on TV, I remember my mom doing that way back when. Anybody can go outside and, and get a walk to move and improve their cardiovascular health. Can anybody, Stuart, pick up some weights and do resistance training? Yeah, I think that that's um, a, a little bit of a tough question to answer. It depends a little bit on what people's physical limitations are. We always say, and I, I run a center that has about 500 community members, the average age of which is about 73, and we, we say to them, you know, what is it that you want to be able to do in your activities of daily living? You know, oh, I'd like to be able to bend down and pick up my grandkid, for example. We say, okay, we're going to teach you how to do that, but do it safely safely bend your knees and that sort of thing. And I think that, 
you know, it's not even necessary to use the external weights, although that's a great way to do things, but you can even do it with your own body weight. And I mean, uh, things like uh, a push-up or a pull-up or something like that, or modified versions of that are just as good for you in terms of building strength as, uh, as lifting weights. Not that that's, you know, one person's, I think this is a great time as another person's, oh, there's no way I do that. So I I like to try and break down barriers for people and say the, going to the gym and the lifting weights is great for some, but it, it's not what's necessary. But getting a little bit stronger is a big deal. Can you share with us the benefits that we will derive from resistance or weight training? Yeah, you know, I think this is a little bit of a revelation to a lot of people is that when we talk about health, we talk about cardiovascular health, we talk about you know, our ability to, you know, resist getting type 2 diabetes or lowering our risk for cancer, we might think exercise in, is generically good for us. And we would think, oh, well, that's aerobic exercise. When in fact, the health benefits of resistance exercise overlap to a tremendous extent with aerobic. And in fact, when you do both of those forms of exercise, you get an even further benefit, which is really suggested that they might be working through different mechanisms. So I, I think that that's the sort of, you know, peeling back the layers is, is really the message that I was trying to get out there is that something is always better than nothing. And for probably a lot of people, as, particularly as they get older, it's going to be strength and power that will limit what your activities of daily living that you need to do are. So you need to stay in shape for sure, but you need to be a little bit stronger as well. You really struck me with your example earlier, Stuart, about somebody saying, I want to be able to bend down and pick up my grandchildren. And I think maybe in your twilight years, you still want to swing a golf club because you really enjoy doing that. I just read an interview with Billie Jean King, who at the age of 80 started swinging a tennis racket again. So these are the sorts of things that perhaps some weight or resistance training can help us continue doing longer into our lives. Yeah, you know, I, I, someone like Billie Jean King is a great example, and there are from the golf world lots of examples of uh, players who who are able to still swing the clubs and uh, and get around. Maybe not even on uh, on a cart. Maybe walk and uh, pull their own clubs. Might not carry their own club, but you know, carry, uh, uh, pull them behind them. Um, and, and that is, you know, that's that's endurance, but it's also a little bit of strength in the the speed with which you swing a club. Well, that's power, and so. Yeah, I mean, what's the vision of your future you? What would you like to be able to do? And then think about what the demands of that are. And a lot of the things become sort of strength-oriented and not as much about aerobic fitness. Not that that's not great. So, you know, really the takeaway is um, try and get a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful, uh, and maintain that into your later years. So if, Stuart, it would be fair to say that aerobics and and aerobic exercise has dominated the exercise landscape for 40 or so years now. Uh, And I think that might be fair to say, thinking back on the 20-minute workout and all of these other things that we've talked about. uh, Are are you trying to, you know, replace that narrative with, hey, weight training is is the way to go, or are these going to be complementary exercise activities? Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you asked the question. I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that one replaced the other. And I think when you look at, I mean, Canada has a set of, you know, what we call them 24-hour movement guidelines, or what most people would know as the, the physical activity guidelines. And generically, whether you look to Canada, the United States, or actually 
all over the world, just about every country has the recommendation that you do some form of aerobic exercise, but you do some work that keeps you strong. And also there's a little bit of a focus on balance as well. As we know, things like falls as you get older become, you know, they could be watershed events, right? A real downturn in, in people's health. So things like being stronger, having good balance are fostered by activities like resistance training, weightlifting, strength training, but then things like Tai Chi and yoga as well. So uh, all of those activities slightly different than the, you know, putting the leg warmers on and doing the 20 minute workout, but uh, equally beneficial. So it's, it's both and not an and or scenario. So I have said many times, Stuart, and I will say again this morning, the, the number one reason that I love getting out for long walks with the dog today is because I want my legs to continue serving me for as long as humanly possible. I just simply, I mean, I'm sure my yet to be born grandchildren, I'll want to pick them up too, but I'll get to that down the road. I'm not quite there, but I honestly think about when I'm well into my eighties and I see folks out in the neighborhood when I'm taking my walks that are out there doing their thing. And I'm like, that's what I want to be able to do. So I think what I'm hearing here is as much as it pains me, literally and figuratively, I better keep doing those lunges, right? You know what? (laughs) You you put it perfectly. And I think that that's really uh, what a lot of us probably feel. There's nothing like getting outside and going for a walk. I know it's a little chilly today, but the sunshine out there, it certainly makes you feel alive, right? And and you get a great feeling because of it. But as you say, what's the vision of where you want to be a few years from now? And what do you want to be able to do? And so... We know for certain that physical activity is a real key component to aging successfully, but we also know that staying stronger and having a little bit of leg power and even, you know, I watch people, I I travel a fair bit and I watch people trying to put their suitcase in the overhead compartment and a lot of times I'm jumping up and saying, can I help you with that? And the other day I saw an 80-year-old, she had to be 80 years old and she just hoisted it over her head and threw it right in there and I thought, wow, that's a... That's a healthy, older person doing something that they're loving to do. Absolutely. Goals right there. Uh, Stuart, really appreciate the piece that you wrote and the time that you've taken to talk to us about it today. Thanks very much for making time for the show. You're most welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. You too, sir. Stuart Phillips is a professor of kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health at McMaster University. It's, it's not an either-or. Okay, it's a yes and. It's fair to say, is it not, that aerobic exercise, getting your cardio in, has been the dominant theme when it comes to how we exercise and where to get the best benefits from exercise, right? A way back to the 20-minute workout days, all of the exercise videos with all of the aerobic fitness instructors, and that's fine, but I'm, I'm really glad that Stuart wrote this. And I'll, full disclosure, I mean, when I read it, it, it really appealed to me because for my whole life, my whole life, I have been interested in weight training. I had a book when I was a kid, Weight Training for Teens, okay? I had the, the home gym set up, if you will, those old rickety benches with the, the weights that had Uh, concrete inside the plastic, you know, a barbell, some dumbbells with the plastic collars on them that you would, you know, twist tight or whatever. And I had visions because I was a, look, I'm I'm born in 71. I was in my 
impressionable prime in the 80s when Sylvester Stallone was my Hollywood hero and Schwarzenegger. It was like the two of them. You remember the action movie heroes? And I I was a sly guy, but I'm like, I want to look like that. I want to look like that. Who knew when you're 10, 12, 13 years old? But I, I started into weight training then. I got back into it in my adult years for a little bit. And I really did come to realize all of the benefits that come with weight training. And and frankly, I hated cardio. I really <laughs> I really did. I didn't love really pushing myself physically in a cardiovascular way, but I just think that weight training or resistance training as it's known has been overlooked. The benefits of it. And and maybe this is just another way for us to reevaluate our long-term fitness goals, our long-term health goals and how we can incorporate something as Simple as a wall set or a lunge or maybe have a set of dumbbells and do a few curls and keep those muscles stronger and firmer so that you can use them longer in life. George, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Mike. A good friend of mine just moved to Spaceside. I'm not sure if you know where that is. It's just south of Acton. Okay, I haven't heard of it, but gotcha. I know the I know Acton for sure. Right, and he's just south of Acton, and his property is right along the Bruce Trail. So him and I are looking forward to spring, summer, doing as much of the Bruce Trail as we can in that area. And there you go. There's your cardio. There's your walk. You just getting out in nature, enjoying that sunshine. So it's something we're very much looking forward to. I love that, George. I love, I've heard people that have done the entire Bruce Trail. I would love to do that someday. You don't do it all at once, of course, but in stages. I'm curious, though, because I'm with you. Love the walks. I get out to the Huron Natural Area whenever I can here in town, etc. But have you considered or do you do anything to make sure those legs keep serving you for those walks in the future? Well, up until COVID hit, even during COVID, I did the them every day. Sorry, you did what? You cut out for a second. I did the gym every day before COVID and as much as I could during COVID. But since then, I've fallen to a lapse a little bit. So I'm looking forward to spring, getting back out there, whether it's trails or maybe rejoin the gym. Yeah. Attaboy, George. Appreciate the call. And thanks for weighing in on this. This is honestly the thing. So here we go. Full disclosure. I mean, if I'm not going to embarrass myself, who am I going to embarrass on the show? Uh, In the weeks and months leading up to Christmas, so it was early-ish December, we, at at my urging, uh, added some new elements to the quote-unquote home gym. And it's so much easier. I described, and I'll bet many of you had similar home gym setups back in the day, right? But now it's so much easier when you can get adjustable dumbbells. So we have this dumbbell rack. You know, it's just two dumbbells. You can turn the dial to get whatever weight you want on it. And listen, I'm under no illusions that I'm going to look like Sylvester Stallone these days. But I understand, truly, I, I, I believe strongly in the benefits of weight training. And I just want to make sure that I want to give myself the best shot. That when I'm in my 80s, God willing, I'm still around, and I'm walking around. I'm on that Bruce Trail with George. I'm walking the dog through the neighborhood. I'm at the Huron Natural Area, whatever the case may be. And so because this is new and and I'm getting back into it, I did my first set, just one set 
of 10 lunges one day last week, and it took me about five days. My legs were so sore, even by the end of the first set. I kid you not. The one and only set that I did. That I might have been okay to do another set yesterday, but I didn't. Got to get myself back on that horse so that, you know, maybe I can do more than one set of lunges with a very light weight in my hand. But that <laughs> that's how much it hurt. And yet, I'm going to give her my absolute best. We also have a piece of cardio equipment at home. And I'll be blunt about this as well. It's a rowing machine. And when my beloved picked it up, I thought, what fresh hell is this? Who needs a rowing machine? Because I'll tell you how I feel about stationary bicycles. I cannot stand them. I would much rather be out actually moving on a bike than sitting inside riding a bike. And, and much like I think yours, the two different exercise bikes we had in our home became glorified clothes hangers, right? You just drape stuff over them. But this rowing machine, let me tell you, I'm committed to it. I like it, even though it's like being on a stationary bike. You're not actually out in the water going anywhere, but there's something about the rowing that I really, I, I kind of dig. So I got some cardio going with the rowing machine. I'm trying with the set of adjustable dumbbells to get a little bit of resistance training in there. And hey, new year, why not? See, it's only four days in, but I'm committed. Have you made a resolution in that regard? Or maybe this is the better. What do you do? What is your number one choice for exercise? Is it a walk? Is it a, a more difficult hike? Is it riding a bike, a stationary? Like, I've never tried one of those Peloton things. Not really my cup of tea, but maybe you love it. What's your go-to choice for exercise? Would love to hear. Maybe you can inspire somebody else. I've also never done yoga, except the one time when it was beer yoga. You get the point. I'd love to hear from you on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. What's the vision of your future you? What would you like to be able to do? And then think about what the demands of that are. And a lot of the things become sort of strength-oriented and not as much about aerobic fitness. Not that that's not great. So, you know, really the takeaway is try and get a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful, and maintain that into your later years. Maybe... You want to be able to bend down and pick up that grandkid. Maybe you want to keep swinging that golf club. For me, it's as simple as I want my legs to serve me as long as they possibly can. So if that means some strength training to go along with the walks that I get a little bit of cardiovascular fitness from, then so be it. And Stuart Phillips at McMaster University reminds us this morning that there are benefits and and probably underappreciated and oft overlooked benefits from weight training. What's your go-to exercise? What are you trying to keep doing as long as you can in life? Let's go to the phones. John, good morning. Morning. You know, there's a saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. That's a very, I think of that often. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. Um, and I think the best form of exercise is falling in love with a woman and having... Come on, John. Are you serious right now? Okay, our call screener. You know what? If you don't use it, you lose it. Maybe you're right, John. I think I know where you were going with that. <laughs> and, you know, for your sake, John, and and for the sake of everybody who wishes it was this, their own sake, I hope it's working out for you. I hope you are using it as often as you are able. Because I'd hate for you to lose it, my friend. I would hate for you to lose it. All right, we're fast approaching your 11 a.m. update 
from the City News Center. A story that we brought to you not long before Christmas about the little food pantry in Cambridge. You know, the one on Jarvis Street that has caused a great deal of controversy because somebody in the neighborhood complained that this little food pantry was attracting the wrong kind of crowd to the neighborhood. And so the pantry's owner learned from the city of Cambridge that the pantry was actually sitting on city property. And, oh yeah, by the way, do you know there are public health guidelines that go around these little food pantries that you might just be creating to help out in your neighborhood? We're going to help you understand the rules better. So if if you're thinking of a food pantry of your own, we're going to talk to somebody who knows how to get around all the reg, not get around, get around, like work with the region to make sure the pantries meet the necessary codes. We'll talk to her next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Well, this is a brand new one, and I can tell you that 1996 me, when I first turned on a microphone and said something on the radio, would not believe that 2024, yes, it's now 2024, me, just learned via Facebook that my scheduled guest for this segment is not going to be joining us on the show See, Facebook wasn't a thing, kids, back in 1996. But it was so. During that update with Mark Douglas, I had just gone online to check in with our guest to say, "Hey, we're just waiting for you on the Zoom call." Because Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass, and I had both logged into the scheduled Zoom call, only for me to see a notification through Facebook that there. At least there's a post on my timeline of all the ways to. Uh, let me know. That's a curious one. And so I'm unable to speak with the founder of the 519 Community Collective during the next few minutes. But that's okay. The reason we were going to be speaking with the founder of the 519 Community Collective is because that organization that tries to do all manner of good things for people in our community in need operates a number of of these little food pantries. You know, the free food pantries that you might see at places around your neighborhood. They're a lot like little libraries where you can take a book and leave a book. But these particular boxes leave you the opportunity to take some food or drop off some food. And the 519 Community Collective operates a number of these around the region and makes sure that they are compliant with regional guidelines because you see public health in the region says really these food pantries are not recommended because it's possible and I'm not trying to give anybody ideas here but I think we understand this innately it is possible that the food could be tampered with or otherwise contaminated and you out of the goodness of your heart are leaving the food there for somebody who really needs it. And then, of course, it gets contaminated and or otherwise tampered with. And then the person who 
takes it and consumes it, ends up falling ill. And I think we can understand that there are some challenges here. Of course, there's also the opportunity for non-perishables and a bunch of other things. But the bottom line is that there are rules governing these free little food pantries and public health does not recommend them. Public health does not prevent you from establishing one. It just does not recommend that you do that. The other issue that we have come to learn from the city of Cambridge is that where these little pantries are located can be an issue. And we covered the story not long before Christmas of Audrey Hill and her little food pantry on Jarvis Street in Cambridge. And Audrey was quite upset that she had been informed by the city of Cambridge that she could not leave her little food pantry where it was, at the front of her home on Jarvis Street in Cambridge. It's, it's right up near the sidewalk because where else would you put the little library or the little food pantry, right? You want to put it somewhere that it's visible and that it is easily accessible. So the founder of the 519 Community Collective is well aware of this as well, along with public health guidelines that they make sure they are following. They also make sure that their little food pantries that they operate or help other people establish are on private property. So I was hoping to to speak with the founder of the 519 Community Collective to get that sense from her so we could all have a better understanding of this. But to the matter in Cambridge where Audrey's little food pantry is right at the front of her property, it's at her house, right? So what possibly could be the problem? Well, according to the city of Cambridge, the first 16 feet of that property actually belong (laughs) to the city. And okay, I guess I get it. So here's the thing. It's, It's pretty easy to look at the city of Cambridge And the fact that a notice was issued to Audrey Hill about her pantry, which, by the way, has been operating for years, more than three years now, this pantry has been in operation. It's pretty easy to look at the city of Cambridge and say, you're the Grinch that's trying to steal the free food pantry before Christmas, because this was happening in the weeks leading up to the Christmas break. But if we step back a little bit, We recognize a couple of things here. One is that by law or anybody from the city is not going to go and check in on this little food pantry unless somebody sends in a complaint about it. It's not like we have bylaw officers or other city staffers roving around the city looking for little food pantries that might be in violation of some kind of code. It's just not something that cities get involved in, right? So this really starts with somebody else in the neighborhood. Now, would I like to see the neighborhood have a conversation and figure things out for themselves? Yes, I would. If I had something, if I had a problem with something my neighbor was doing, I'm going to talk to my neighbor about that. I'm not going to automatically call the bylaw department or call my city councillor and and lodge the complaint that way. Perhaps there was a conversation with the neighbours. I don't know. The other thing that we have to learn here or have to understand is that as much as you think all of that property is yours, and yes, I get it, 
if you're a homeowner, you're paying taxes on all of that property. But it, it really isn't. The, the city does have some allowance in virtually every jurisdiction up to a certain point on what you believe to be your property because they might want to widen the road sometime. There might be some kind of obstruction. I, Whatever it is, there's usually some leeway there, let's just say. So in most cases, like I just think about my place when I'm out mowing the lawn, and yes, even though it's not yours, kind of like the uh, the boulevard part, right? We've long known that doesn't belong to us as as homeowners, but we mow it anyway. And when I'm out mowing my lawn, my front lawn, I... I know very well where the uh, the water line is, right? So that's typically the place where you can see is the uh, the barrier or the 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 border of what the city owns and what you own. Beyond that, to your house, beyond that water line to your house, that's that's you. And then from that water spigot to the road, that's usually the city's stuff. So it's not uncommon, but sixteen feet, which is what the city of Cambridge is saying. It owns on Audrey Hill's property. That that seems that seems like an awful lot. However, much like I said a moment ago, where it's easy to look at the city of Cambridge here and say you're being pretty grinchy by telling Audrey that she has to remove her free food pantry. First of all, the city doesn't act without a complaint, as I've already said. Second of all, what the city is saying is that this pantry is currently on municipal property. You have to move it back 16 feet so it's on your property. And that could still be done, right? It's very strange, and I think the city could have made a choice here, a different choice, and decided to ignore the complaint, which wouldn't have gone over well with the person issuing the complaint, but it seems like a pretty nitpicky thing to get into, right? The city chose to act on the complaint, as is its duty, and now Audrey Hill has a choice. Get rid of the pantry or just move it 16 feet back. That also makes this problem, in air quotes, go away. So it's kind of where we're at in Cambridge right now, and we are learning more about these little food pantries in general, the public health guidelines around them, how they are not recommended. But the crux of the issue for me is twofold. The city only acts when there's a complaint, and you can still keep this food pantry. You just have have to move it further back on your property. Do you think the city of Cambridge is acting Grinch-like here, if I can carry the holiday analogy into the new year? Or is it just doing what it's supposed to do? I mean, you could just move that pantry 16 feet back off of the quote-unquote city property and onto your own, and then life goes on. Right? That, to me, is the easiest way to square this circle, but I'm not the one with the food pantry that's been sitting there for three years and nobody ever said a word <laughs> a word about it. And yes, the city could have taken a much softer-handed or lighter-handed approach to this, but it didn't. And so, here we are. Is the city being a little heavy-handed here, or should the homeowner just relocate that pantry a little further back on the property? 519-570-2545. Star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Paul, good morning. Morning. How goes? It goes pretty well. How goes with you? 
Oh, it goes great. Good Listen, man. We got to get rid of all of those little pantry things. Eliminate them altogether. If somebody's starving, there's plenty of dumpsters out back of the restaurants. They can go do some dumpster diving there for their food. Come on I'm now, sure it's much you, better quality than they're putting in the pantry. You do not mean that. Of course, I don't. Okay. How stupid can somebody be? You know, in today's economy, there are people, working people who can't afford to uh, to feed themselves, to put a roof over their head. Uh, and yet, because they're working, they don't qualify for other assistance, such as the food bank. Here's somebody who's trying to help out, and some idiot in the neighborhood has got to go and complain about it. The You know, like, how low can you go? You know, Paul, I, th- I think you make a, a really good point. And I will also just add, I don't think the food bank turns anybody away. I have some firsthand experience in that when I was taking part in, in a social experiment I've shared with you before, uh, trying to live for a week off the amount that would be left over if I was on some sort of Ontario support payment. The leftover would have been 20 bucks for food. So I did that for a week. I couldn't make the 20 bucks last and I wanted to stay true to the uh, to the experiment, so I went to a community meal uh, supplied by the food bank at the end of that week, and they did not turn me away. I think you can, no matter what your employment status is, if you need the help, I think the food bank's going to help you. However, to your point, I, I think it's it's very well made. Like what we're talking about here, when we have employed people who cannot afford food, we have failed as a community generally. That's the underlying issue here. So let's not pick on the person that's trying to help out, trying to fill that gap. I think it's a really good point. Gerald, good morning. Hi, how are you doing, Mike? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Good. Um, I think the issue for the city just comes down to, like it always does, uh, a matter of liability. And, you know, given what you've said already about the chance of the food being contaminated or whatever and also given the status of our legal systems these days where everybody's getting sued for anything and everything i can probably figure out that it's a it's a question of liability but having said that um you know moving it back 16 feet uh onto our own property they're not resolving the fact that they could still be held liable by somebody walking across the property, city property, in order to get to the box. So it's kind of one of those, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of issues. But I guess like everything else, the city's holding firm by saying, well, if we allow this, then where do we draw the line? So it's unfortunate, but I just think it's it's the state of the world. Gerald, thanks very much for the call. I think that's another excellent point. I hadn't even considered the liability aspect of this, but sure, if somebody falls ill consuming food from the pantry that's on city property, eh right? And so there you have it. Uh, Excellent point made that I had not even considered. And yes, we are a litigious group, aren't we? A litigious lot, I might say. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more of your calls. What? Where do you find the most fault in, in the little food pantry on Jarvis Street in Cambridge? Is, is is the city being a little heavy-handed here? Or does the homeowner just have to compromise and move that pantry further back? We'll take more calls right after this quick time out on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. 
So you see, we've got these things, these little food pantries in various places around the region, like the little libraries except for food. Makes sense. That's why it's a pantry, not a library. But public health, while not outright saying thou shalt not place a pantry on one's property, public health does recommend against because there is the possibility of food contamination or tampering, which I think is understandable. And also, to Gerald's point earlier when he phoned in, it kind of washes one's hands, at least to some degree, of any potential liability. This all comes to a head, though, after a woman on Jarvis Street in Cambridge had a pantry that the city of Cambridge has now learned about and asked to be removed because it is currently sitting on city property. The interesting thing is that the property where the pantry sits is on Audrey Hill's own property. She She's the homeowner, and, and yet the pantry at the front of that yard near the sidewalk is apparently on city property. The city tells Audrey that they own 16 feet of that property, so she'd have to move the pantry back at least that much. It's tough. It sounds heavy-handed. The only reason the city gets involved is if somebody complains. And, oh, yeah, people are really in need of food support, right? Because food insecurity is at an all-time high. So it's a really difficult situation. And I just wonder if you think the city is being too heavy-handed or maybe the homeowner should just move that pantry further back. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Sean, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I was also thinking what Gerald was thinking. Uh, like, I, I looked in Google Street View, and it's been there since at least October 2020. And it's a little, no, I mean, I don't know how many people know, but most municipalities are constantly in court, and they have legal departments. And liability, most municipalities are risk adverse it's your tax dollars in action other uh, unless you enjoy your tax dollars going to pay legal cost <laughs> but yeah as long as they can pretend it's not there they're not going to do anything about it even though they may know it's there but once somebody's complained they could be held liable if anything happens to anybody so yeah it's got to be moved off their property I, I mean it's just a fact of life in our society unfortunately um I don't know if there's an answer for it. There are, it's, it's just one of those unfortunate things. Sean, I appreciate the call. And, and I think you've all brought some really good points to bear in this conversation, including Paul, who started with, like, what kind of neighbor complains about the little pantry that's giving out some free food to people in need? Like, honestly. But that's where we're at. And then from the city's perspective, once it is aware, turning a blind eye doesn't necessarily work if liability is a potential issue here. So that's where we, that's how we end up where we have ended up in this particular case. All right, we're fast approaching 1130, your update from the City News Center. Then an interesting question for you. If you were to engage in a small daily act of joy, you know, think of something simple that brings joy to you, like the sip of the, fir- the the first sip from that warm cup of coffee in the morning could that on a regular basis those small daily acts of joy increase your overall happiness well there's something called 
the Big Joy Project that aims to find out that very thing. And we're going to find out the answer as best we can coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us on City News 570. It was a headline that, frankly, I found irresistible. It was in my Globe and Mail earlier this week, and the headline asked if small daily acts of joy could increase happiness. I was definitely intrigued, and I learned more through reading the article about what is known as the Big Joy Project and its co-campaign initiative Uh, The documentary called Mission Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times. And the co-director and producer of that documentary film, Mission Joy, Peggy Callahan, joins us on the program this morning. Peggy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. How are you? (laughs) I am so happy to be talking with you. And I've actually been where you guys are located before because a friend of mine lived there. No way. <laughs> okay. Right. Now I can almost picture it. <laughs> it begs the question, Peggy. Did you find joy while you were here? You have to be honest now. Oh, absolutely. Because I was with one of my dearest friends in the world, a great anti-slavery activist named Camille Nagy. And um, being around friends and family... It's some of the best joy-making things in the world. Tamia's book is excellent. Absolutely fantastic. Isn't it? I love her. So you obviously are in good company with your friends here in my community. And when you put together this documentary, which looked closely at the friendship between the Dalai Lama and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. What was that experience like for you, Peggy, spending time with these men and documenting their activities? You know, it was beyond delicious. I had worked with um, um, Archbishop Tutu for about 19 years by then because I also, um, besides uh, television and film work, I I cite modern-day slavery, and he was on our board. So I've known him for quite a while, but I had never met His Holiness, and we stayed um, at the Dalai Lama's, you know, compound for a week and got to hear the, some of the wisest men in the world um, talk and laugh and share their pain and share their joy and show us how we could get there, too. And it was quite the gift. What was it, Peggy, that made you so curious about the impacts of these small daily acts of joy? Well, you know, what they were saying about joy is that it is something you practice. It's like building a muscle. And then we went and interviewed um, really some of the greatest scientists about joy in the world who have been studying this forever. 
And they also talked about these daily acts that you could just learn to practice. And so we were going to do that using social media. We were going to ask people to encourage their friends to do these acts of joy. And I was telling a friend of mine about that in London, and um, he's a great activist, Jamie Drummond, and he said, well, why don't you do a citizen science project? Because then you could find out some of the great scientific answers that are still left to be discovered, and as well as helping people learn how to create joy in their life. And unlike most films, where you really, your job is just to get the film out there in, a, um, in an impact campaign, our job was bigger than that. Our remit was how do we help people live with more joy? And so we were able to do this. We were able to get together and find out all about these things with great scientists and design something that could be used around the world. So that participation, Peggy, from those great scientific minds that work hand-in-hand with your documentary, that's what brings together the Big Joy Project then? Is that how it works? Well, that's what got us really curious about it and how we could do it. And, um, and so I wrote to a scientist friend who I had also talked to about the film at uh, University of California in San Francisco, and I said, could we do a study where we had people do acts of joy that we know work, but we don't know how sex and gender, I mean, um, culture, age impacted? So could we do a study? She literally wrote back the next day and said, yes, and UC Berkeley's involved, and Harvard will come in and advise some, and, and it just took off, and it quickly became the largest study, uh, um, citizen science study on joy ever. And we just thought we were doing a film, you know, a little documentary. Right. So what have you learned through this entire process? Oh, um, what I've learned about joy and what the study has taught us, and this is something that we have only recently been able to share because it's in process and, um, and I was just able to share this with the Dalai Lama. So we have learned from the study so far, the preliminary results, that people who do this for seven minutes a day, for seven days, for just one week, how about that for a New Year's resolution to have more joy, right? <laughs> Are 25.59% um, happier, and they have an increased <clears throat> peace of mind and well-being. They are... 12%, um, they have 12% better sleep. There's a 23% increase in ability to have positive emotions. I know it's a lot of numbers, but goodness, can you imagine seven minutes a day times seven days? They have a 27% increase in feeling agency over joy in their lives. They're 30 cent, a 30% more content with friendships and relationships. And there's a 34% increase in feeling in control and that you are coping well with life. Seven minutes a day for seven days. What, what is it that we're doing for those seven minutes a day for seven days? Mm. You, um, it's all web-based. So um, at the very beginning of the study, you answer a few, you do a survey. So we're seeing where you stand there. And then each day... You do um, one of 
seven acts of joy that are uh, assigned. That's like reframing, gratitude, awe, forgiveness, um, changing your perspective. And um, it really takes seven minutes. You practice it. You know, you do, you do something with it on the, in the study. And then at the end, you do another survey when you leave. And um, you get a six-page printout with all of your results. So you know what works best for you. Because scientists know all of those things work for some people. What we don't know is what might work for you specifically. So you find that out. So that the next time you're feeling down or you're feeling troubled, you can pull that out of your back pocket and use it again. Or you can share what you know with other friends of yours and family who could use some help. You mentioned a moment ago, seven minutes a day for seven days to bring these increases in one's overall level of happiness. Great timing with the new year. Who couldn't commit to that by way of resolution, for example? So is that to say, Peggy, that there is still an opportunity for people to participate in this Big Joy project? Absolutely. We are at um, 87,000 participants now. We are would really love... 13,000 more, and by the way, four, more than 4,000 Canadians have already done it. Um, but yes, you can go. Sign up. Um, it's at missionjoy.org forward slash big joy, and you can get started right away. And I have to tell you, I always feel like a loser when I make resolutions <laughs> at the beginning of the year. <laughs> I do. I, I'm so embarrassed. I just like, I'm, I, I'm terrible. I can, even I can do seven days for seven minutes a day. Have, have you, I, I, I mean, given the results that, that have been achieved so far, and I mean, it's a pretty good number of participants. I can understand aiming for that 100,000 threshold, but 87,000 thus far is, is a really impressive number of participants that are all showing these gains. Have you, Peggy, unlocked the secret to happiness here? Ah, I can tell you that for me personally, I I think I recognized a lot of these things and I had um, taken them up in my life in some way. But for me, this kind of put it all on steroids for me and really gave me a structure to what was kind of floating around in my head. So I learned from this, which I kind of knew already, but it, it reinforced it was that um, the big thing for me is I experience a lot of awe when I'm outside in nature. And thankfully, I live close to the beach, and so I'm often walking five miles a day at the beach, and that feels really good to me. I have a great deal of gratitude um, in my, my deep relationships in life that are really important to me. And um, helping someone else, that really gives me a lot of joy, as it does most people. And those are my go-to on those days when staying in bed with the covers over my head just seems like a great idea. (laughs) I can relate to that. We got a sunny day here, Peggy, for the first time in about two weeks. We haven't had a lot of cold and snow this winter yet, but we have just gone through a spell of about two straight weeks of gray skies, and just seeing the sun today was such a mood booster. I, it's hard for me to express how much it meant to us. 
isn't it amazing? And one of the great things is you see you stopped and you recognized it. That helps. That will boost you even more. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I'm just, I'm so happy to have seen it. You, you said something earlier that caught my attention when you said you, you thought you were just making a little film, a little documentary. Have you have you taken a moment to to take all of this in and where your quote unquote little documentary mission joy has gone? Um, you know what? It's kind of big. It, it is hard <laughs> for me. It's hard for me to um, hold it all in my arms, right? Um, it it it's in like two hundred and. 40-something countries and territories. And the things we hear from people every day about how the how their wisdom impacted, how the Holy Man's wisdom impacted them is, is astonishing. And, interestingly enough, do you know the Dalai Lama and his team? Much more interested in the Big Joy project because he's really a, the Dalai Lama is really a scientist at heart. He, he, much more interested in the Big Joy project than the film. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it's just terrific, and and I love the way that it has grown to what it has. Uh, Peggy, thank you so much for making time for the show today. I really appreciate it, and Happy New Year! Thank you. I have to ask you one little teeny tiny question. Anytime, yeah. Um. So. Would it be possible for us to interview you at some other time about your Farewell for Hire project? It sounds amazing to us, and we think it would inspire other people to find ways to make the world better. And we have a a kind of large um, following on social media. So we'd love to interview you if you would give us the time and grace to do that. Listen, Peggy, I ask the questions. I do not uh, get asked questions. I'm sorry to dis... No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You've put me on the spot live on the show now, though. You realize this. Uh-huh. No. Because I, I thought that was my best chance. <laughs> <laughs> you, even if it hadn't been live on the show, I would be delighted. Thank you so much for, for recognizing the the campaign, and I would be over the moon. So we will absolutely make that happen with my gratitude. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. And keep up this great work. I absolutely love it. Thanks again for being here. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Peggy Callahan. How's that for a conversation today? Uh, Peggy is the co-director and producer of the documentary film Mission Joy. And she spent, I was sorry, I was looking for the the full title. So Mission Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times. I should have had that in front of me. My apologies. But imagine, just imagine the opportunity that as a filmmaker she had, spending a week with the Dalai Lama and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And then this, in her words, little documentary, this little film that she was making, uh, leads to the much broader... Scientifically supported Big Joy project, and they've had eighty-seven thousand people participate, including four thousand of us, good old Canadians. Tell you right now, it's good Canadian kid. So, from more than two hundred countries, have participated in seven minutes per per day for seven days, and derived from that effort 
an increase in positive emotions such as hope, optimism, and wonder of 23%. Your sense of empowerment to be happy increased by 27%. And 30% more people said they felt content with their friendships and relationships. Another 12% reported an increase in overall sleep quality, which, of course, we know research tells us is a major indicator of well-being. You can go to missionjoy.org, missionjoy.org, if you would like to sign up and be a part of the Big Joy Project. Just seven minutes a day for seven days. And answers the question for us, can small daily acts of joy increase one's happiness? According to the Big Joy Project, the answer to that is a resounding yes. So, as I said at the outset, when I read the headline, I was taken in. I had to read the article. I'm so glad we could connect with Peggy. But what it made me think of is this. Like, look, I, I, I hate to be too corny or cliche, but really what we're talking about here, right, these small daily acts of joy, is taking that moment to just stop and smell the roses, right? Taking that moment to recognize, as, as Peggy pointed out when I expressed my absolute delight and joy with seeing the sun today. She said you took the moment to recognize that. Hard not to. It's been so so long without seeing it. But that does matter, right? That you took the moment to take that in. So when I thought of this conversation today, I thought I would ask you about that that little thing that you do notice. If I say to you, like, what's that simple pleasure? What would that be in your day or in your life? I already alluded at the beginning to that first sip of coffee. I love it. I love it more on weekends than I do on weekdays for obvious reasons, but I really do. That first sip of coffee is a beautiful thing. You know what other simple little thing I really enjoy? Getting into bed at night when the sheets are just cool and you're pulling up the covers and you're getting ready to settle in. That's a great feeling. Just one of those little things, right? First sip of coffee sliding under the covers when it's time to get some rest. How about the smell of a fresh-cut lawn? I'm a big fan of that one, too. If you can take the time to take it in. What's the simple pleasure that you always make a point of recognizing? Would love to hear it from you at 519-570-2545, star 570-1800-570-5715. Oh, my stupid dog. She's so great. Like every little thing, right? When her tail's up in the air and just curled around like that, she's happy that I'm home. Those are good things. What's the little thing, the simple pleasure in your day? Let us know. On the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. What I've learned about joy and what the study has taught us, that people who do this for seven minutes a day, for seven days, for just one week, are 25.59% happier and they have an increased peace of mind and well-being. I know it's a lot of numbers, but goodness, can you imagine seven minutes a day times seven days? You can handle that, right? How's that for a New Year's resolution? Committing seven minutes a day for seven days to the Big Joy Project. And overall happiness seems to increase. Peggy Callahan is the co-director and producer of Mission Joy, the documentary 
that sparked the research project that's now two years old in more than 200 countries with some 87,000 participants. And they have learned that small daily acts of joy can increase our overall happiness. You can learn more and try it out for yourself if you're so inclined at missionjoy.com. Org. I thought I'd ask you about those simple things, those small daily acts of joy that you recognize in your own life. Maybe we can just lift our spirits by thinking about them. You know, like by noticing the sun coming out today. That was a nice thing. Grant, what's a simple pleasure in your life? Well, you, you did it a couple of days ago. You might not realize that you did it, but you did. And it was in regards to me and Andre. Oh, you like the idea of you and Andre being on the show together? Well, no, you, I can't remember how you said it, but you, you said it in a, in a complimentary way, and there's, and where I live here, there's a family, I know this, uh, mother that works at Rexall, and just having their kids say hi. Yeah, you know, uh, Grant, sorry. I made my day yep. and made the anxiety even less uh, troublesome. I-, I totally get it, Grant. Sorry, because i, I got to get to the news update and you weren't quite finished, but made the anxiety less troublesome. It made your day when someone else's child said hi to you. You never know the shoes that somebody else is walking in, right? And so how a simple gesture, and then to Grant's credit, he recognized it for what it was. Oh, that hello from that person's child made my day. It can be that easy to make someone else's day, to extend that small kindness, holding that door, saying hello, giving a wave. I wave to all the other dog walkers when I'm out there walking the dog. That's what we do, right? It's kind of like the motorcyclist's wave. You wave to the other dog walkers, I think. That's my thing. Maybe I've encountered Grant doing that, and I hope I made his day when I did. Uh, Curiously enough, Grant said the other day when I was talking about him and Andre, Andre is also on the line, but I really do have to get to the news. Maybe Andre wants to hang on, because between 12 and 1, your noon update from the City News Center is coming up, and then it's open lines for our 12 o'clock Talk back hour. That is next. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Take out the papers and the trash. Or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't spread that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Don't do that. Just finish cleaning up your room. Oh, wait, no, 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 please, please do talk back. After all, it's the 12 o'clock talk back hour. So if you're not talking back, I hope you got your listening ears on, my friend. Every day from noon until one, we provide you this opportunity to have your say on current events, on something that's stuck in your craw, on something that's making you feel great, whatever the case may be. Or maybe you're just in the mood for a conversation. Hey, I'm here for it. I'll talk about anything in case you haven't noticed by listening to this show 
for the past six and a half years. 519-570-2545, star 570-1-800-570-5715. It is the 12 o'clock talk back hour where we open the phone lines to hear from you. You know, Andre, like you, good afternoon. Andre, there, there he is. That was not winter this time. Oh, you're good. You're a good listener. <laughs> it's, uh, what's your name? Scarlet. Scarlet, okay. My daughter. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Can I say that? Probably not. <laughs> hey, who's the best hockey team? The Toronto Maple Leafs. Rangers? Yeah, she just said Rangers. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking to me. What's on your mind, Andre? Welcome to the 12 o'clock talkback. Yeah, she's a big Rangers fan. She runs to listen, especially Old Canada, from all the other different schools. So hopefully her school will be there one day. Um, I got a sorry, my a couple things. First one is let's rewind to your segment with Peggy. Yes. So that's two now that I've learned from you, and I share with others. Is uh, the first one a long time ago? It's okay not to be okay. Um, two on uh, this segment. We could talk about it more in another day, but I don't want to take too long. Is I'll never be happy, Mike, but I've learned... You'll never be happy, Andre. Why not? Mike, I said we'll talk about it another day. Oh. <laughs> okay. I lost my happiness when I became blind and trauma and, and, and all that. And I let myself go down for the, at least for the last 10 years, physically, mentally. And I'll talk about that another day, too, about the workout thing how so important it is because we are the father of our capsule. Um, so the reason I'm, I'm calling is uh, when she asks you, um, you know, like uh, to save the world one crack at a time, eh? Go crack specialist. <laughs> uh, I just want to know, Mike, that you, we are gifted and honored to have you in our community. And that's why our community is the best. And I thank you for being you, Mike. Andre, I appreciate the call. I appreciate you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you make calls. Listen, this is the 12 o'clock talkback hour. It's not the 12 o'clock blow sunshine up Farwell's derriere hour. I will say this, though, about what you said. I have, I've given this a lot of thought over the years, and I've had the opportunity to give it a lot of thought over the years. And I give this community the credit for creating the kinds of leaders that we have today for creating the environment that has allowed philanthropists to flourish, people who are real community builders. There's something in the water in Waterloo region, as has often been said. And and I think it's to the community's credit. It, it, this barn-raising mentality has raised not just barns but people and created for them the climate that allows them to be their very best selves. This community, and I know, I listen, I'm not trying to get all sappy on you here, but that is my sincere belief. So it's kind of you to say nice things about me, but I am merely a product of my environment. I promise you that. Grant, I'm so sorry I, I cut you short a moment ago. Not a big deal. Andre sounds like he could be a counselor, or that he used to work as a counselor way back in the day. He's sounds very soothing and i yeah i just hope he gets better whatever in whatever troubles he's going through you know what it 
And it what's helped me out, and I've told you numerous times, just doing a little bit at a time. Some people might think that that's nothing, but it's it's not really nothing. And uh, maybe listen to some meditation, you know, to, yeah, you're... He sounds like a happy guy, and you know what? Yeah. All right. It, it, it's it's not only is your your team that you don't like to mention isn't playing well. Neither is this other football team. Uh, uh, Billichek team yeah the new england patriots good i don't like i i don't care if the new england patriots ever play another down of football (laughs) i I wish the bills would play a good play a really good game not just go through the motions like they played dallas really well and then they barely won against belichick and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Grant. I I appreciate the call. Grant and Andre are cut from the slay, the same uh, slalom-esque cloth. They just like to, you know, from one place to the next. You got to weave and bob and try to stay up with them. I used to pick on the Buffalo Bills an awful lot. Quick story for you around that. You remember, do you remember the first Super Bowl that the Bills lost wide right when they missed the field goal that would have won it, and then instead Bill Parcells and the New York Giants win it. I I did not like the Buffalo Bills at the time. I was I was one of those fans who was so stubborn that, you know, on Sundays when I wanted to watch my favorite team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, all we could get in these here parts were Buffalo Bills games because that's kind of the viewing area geographically that we're in. So I would get frustrated, and it annoyed me, and so I started just, I had this big hate on for the Buffalo Bills. So I I remember watching that Super Bowl with a group of friends, and a number of them were Bills fans. And so, I mean, look, it wasn't even that long a field goal, right? It basically looked like the Bills were about to win their first Super Bowl. And, of course, they missed that field goal, and I celebrated so much, and then I looked at my friends' faces like they were they were devastated, and then I felt like a big fat jerk. But I, I must admit that watching the Bills lose four consecutive Super Bowls, I mean, what what are the chances of making it to four straight, much less losing every one? So you know what Bills stands for, right? Boy, I love losing Super Bowls. We all, we've known this for 30 years now. I have softened. I actually feel bad, and I, I love the passion of Bills fans, and and the city of Buffalo, there's something about it that it's gritty underbelly that I can really get behind. But I'm still a Steelers fan, and I I don't really care if the Bills ever win anything. But I don't dislike them the way that I the way that I used to. Anyway, thanks for sharing, Grant. And as a Steelers fan, honestly, if Bill Belichick retires, if the New England Patriots, who kept beating up on my Steelers when the Patriots were good, if they never win another game, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. I promise you. Next, we go to Mark. It's the 12 o'clock talk back. Hello, Mark. Hi, Mike. Um, you, uh, you said you're taking suggestions for uh, music on your show. We are doing all request Fridays. Hey, tomorrow's Friday. You going to put in a request? Actually, can I put in a quick one now, Mike? Well, yeah, we'll, we won't play it till tomorrow, but you can put it in. 
Okay, well, it won't be for tomorrow. I know... Uh, what do you mean it won't Don, be for tomorrow? Tomorrow's the request day. Okay. Don Cameron's Potato Night is coming up this month. <laughs> okay? Okay. So uh, the morning of uh, Potato Night... Oh, I get you. Like, I'd like to hear Bud the Spud by Stompin' Tom Connors. Okay, I'll tell you what, Mark. When I, I think Potato Night usually comes up in February. Have they, Have you? Did you see it already and I missed it? Anyway, um, you could be right. I thought it was late January. I, I know the February potato blitz is what happens. So, but the potato night usually kicks off the blitz, so it could be late January. You're probably right. Either okay. way, when when it's potato night, I promise you, some Bud the Spud will be on the show that day. Thanks a lot, Farzy. All right, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate it. From Don's native Prince Edward Island, famous for its potatoes, we'll have some Stomp and Tom on occasion of potato night. Rockin' Ronnie, my man. How are you there, Parzi? I'm doing all right, my friend. How are you? I'm good, good. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. A late Merry Christmas, of course. Of course. Um, You were talking earlier there about things you like doing, like that sip of coffee. Yeah, just the little things, right? The simple pleasures, the small joys. (laughs) I'm with you 100%. And and also, like you said, going to bed, you know, the bed's cooler than the air and, and... and it's just, it's really nice to lay back and relax eh, after a, a hard day's work. Cause, you know, I work damn hard. Oh, you do, maybe. I don't, <laughs> but you do. So I'm I'm doing it on your behalf, Ronnie. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, um, and uh, to add to that, another thing I really like, and this is something you'll make me get a kick out of, of course, the sitting in my Impala in the spring, first time out, um, <laughs> it's like, Wow, do I ever love this again, you know? And uh, I mean, I like it all all year, but that first time in there, it's it's fantastic. Okay. And Mike, are you there? I certainly am. Okay. Um, and of course, we can't forget something else. I was gonna say, when Team Canada wins the gold, that didn't happen. Um, Ray Croft, I was happy about him, but I wish we would have had a little more ice time. I don't know what the heck went on there, but. And, of course, the Ranger goal, when they score a goal, I think it uh, it runs shivers through everybody's body at the auditorium. And uh, it's it's uh, and win the game, of course. <laughs> but we'll see what happens again tonight, Mike. They're on a, on a good roll again, okay? All right, Ronnie. Rock on, eh? Thanks for the call. I do appreciate it. You know, when Ronnie talks about that first time sitting in his impala in the spring when the weather improves i think anybody else who has a seasonal vehicle so you know for me that would be the motorcycle there's something special about that first ride of the next season of course there's the other side of that too right the day you put it away for the season is a tough tough day but i always do love that first ride I always take the scenic route, as I call it, home from Zdeno's when I pick up my bike in the spring. Head out on Victoria Street, out to Fountain, go through Breslau. You know, you got to just take in a little bit more of the scenery on that first ride. And it's, it's funny, you know, we talk about, oh, it's like riding a bike, which is exactly what I'm talking about, except a motorized one. But sometimes in the back of your mind, you're like, do I still know how to do this? Can I still shift and clutch and brake and all that stuff? Oh, yeah, you can. And it's the best feeling in the world. And and maybe if you are a winter seasonal enthusiast, it's that first ride on the snowmobile. Are you getting any of those yet? 
I, I don't know that we've had, maybe we've got just enough snowpack to get you going and you can get out further into the northern country and enjoy the trails up that way. I don't know. It's been tough, but winter has really only just begun, I do believe. This is your 12 o'clock talk back hour. We give you a full hour of open lines every day on the Mike Farwell Show. And we're in the midst of it right here on City News 570. Twelve twenty-one. It is your twelve o'clock talk back hour. We do this every day. Happy New Year to you! It's a new feature added to the show with sixty minutes of open line radio for you to share with us whatever it is that's on your mind, or maybe you're just in the mood for a conversation and nobody else wants to talk to you right now. Well, guess what? I'm the person to talk to you. Five one nine. 570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. When we were going through the exercise of reviewing how this show was working, because we've been at it for more than six years now and thinking that maybe there's a tweak or two that we could make. One of the things that the very smart people that I work for mentioned to me is that there's no consistent time or place for people to talk to you set out strictly for that purpose. I mean, we keep phone lines open throughout the day. You get the chance to weigh in on every topic that we cover. But, you know, just so you can let it sink in that, hey, there's always an opportunity to talk about an issue that's bothering me or whatever the case may be on the Farwell Show. And that opportunity is daily between 12 and 1 with the 12 o'clock talkback hour. A couple of things in the news recently that have been on my mind one of which I'll, I'll share now and the other I think I'll, I'll get to just after the 12.30 news because this is going to, I think, take the next several minutes. But if, if you missed the story, it, it happened, it was reported on New Year's Eve day and it was the story of a man from Cambridge who faces not only arson charges but also charges of attempted murder after a house fire on Saturday. So just last Saturday, firefighters in Cambridge respond to the home in the Ballantyne Avenue and McDonald Avenue area of Cambridge. And the fire was, they managed to put out the fire, which is great. However, they found three people in the residence at the time who were asleep. And so the man who is accused of setting the fire is also now charged with attempted murder because the idea being, I think we can connect the dots there, right? This fire was allegedly set deliberately with the intention of killing the people inside the home. My question is this, why don't we do this for impaired driving? I have long argued for this and I was thinking about it this morning because when we started the show and I gave you the list of the, the Farwell Five, things that you might want to know for today in Wellington County OPP reported a, a doubling of the number of impaired driving charges during their festive ride campaign this year. And if you've listened to this show for 
more than a minute, you know that impaired driving is one of those things that really chafes my chaps. And I, I go way back on this theory that I've put forward that if you make the decision to drive while impaired, you have essentially premeditated that decision because you have every opportunity when you leave the house for a night to go out and have a few pops or more than a few pops with the boys or the girls, whatever the case may be, you have the choice to already arrange alternate transportation. And if you don't do that, you still have the choice as you decide, you know, like for me, I know I'm, I'm a two beer limit. If you decide that you're going three or four, like at what point do you then also make the decision that you have to find another way home? And for whatever reason, we don't apply those charges. Now, I, I know there is vehicular manslaughter or uh, impaired driving causing death, etc. I'm talking, though, strictly. If you get pulled over and you are found to be impaired behind the wheel, why is essentially the charge or the penalty a monetary fine, a license suspension, etc. Why not a charge? I'm not I'm not even joking about this. Like I said, I I thought about this a long time ago. Why not a charge right then and there of attempted murder? Because just because you didn't hit somebody doesn't mean you could not have. There's a lot of double negatives in there. I'm sorry for that. I just couldn't think of a better way to say it. But essentially what I'm saying to you is you got off lucky that you didn't hit somebody, you knucklehead. Like, what are you doing getting behind the wheel after having consumed too much alcohol? I am sick and tired of it. The messaging has been so clear on this for so long. I don't know why. Like, this to me, this arson charge, along with an attempted murder charge, fits in perfectly with impaired driving. So you decided to get behind the wheel while drunk. Oh, Thank you for not killing somebody, but you sure as hell could have. Why don't we apply the same kind of charge to impaired driving like that? I would not complain one little bit if we stiffened impaired driving charges and laws to also bring into the envelope attempted murder. And then don't even get me started if you do, of course, kill somebody when you make such a stupid decision. Just something that came up in the news that struck me that I thought I'd share with you. That's what the 12 o'clock talkback hour is all about. And we're going to get you an update from the City News Center and then continue. Maybe something in the news has struck you or maybe you think my idea is wackadoodle. I don't think it's wackadoodle at all. I've given this some thought. I just shared that thought with you. You can let me know what you think of my thoughts. (laughs) This is the Mike Farwell Show and your 12 o'clock talkback hour on City News 570. Nothing like a Thursday night hockey game in Kitchener, eh? It's not Friday. If you're still enjoying some vacation time this week, you still have another day in your vacation week. And then still the weekend. Me, on the other hand, I get to go to the rink tonight. Don't get me wrong, not complaining. Love me some time 
at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. However, after being there tonight for the weekend, well, you're still enjoying the last of your vacation if you're enjoying a vacation right now. I get to go to Sudbury and North Bay. What's the winner get, Farwell? That's the prize, baby. It's the prize right there. But we're looking forward to some hockey tonight at the Memorial Auditorium. This is our 12 o'clock talkback hour where we keep the phone lines open to hear from you. Whatever happens to be on your mind, maybe something in the news has caught your attention, like I shared before the break about the story from Cambridge where a man's been arrested, charged with not just arson, but also attempted murder because there were several people sleeping inside the home that he is alleged to have set ablaze. And it just got me thinking about something that's long been on my mind, and that's impaired driving laws. I just don't think we've ever been stiff enough, and I've always wondered why. Even if you don't kill somebody, why you're not charged with attempting to do just that. It's a pretty boneheaded decision to get behind the wheel after having too many drinks. So that's something that was on my mind. We'll go back to the phones. Wes, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, sir. And I am so happy you asked this question. Uh, First of all, I think why not? Because... The arson was an intended and directed towards certain subjects. So it's not it wasn't random as you drive and then suddenly hit. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point, Wes. And I I don't want to interrupt, but just we have to admit that if you get behind the wheel while you're impaired, you're sure as heck running the risk. You may not intend on that specific person, but you certainly intend on doing something really dumb, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I said I'm so glad you asked this question. Because maybe you don't remember me from this talk show, but many times I was calling about drugs. And why not the drug dealers are classified under the same arson intention to kill gotcha. subject? Yeah. Why not? Just because it doesn't take a second or two days or on the spot kill, it takes months and years sometimes wow let's go there let's go there please all right that's all i want to say thanks wes no i appreciate that and you know what that's another great way to look at how we penalize people under current laws in this country there have been lots and and this is where i thought wes was going to go there have been lots of calls around stiffening the penalties to people who peddle the drugs uh, because what we end up with often, of course, is is the users who run afoul of the law for much smaller crimes like, you know, stealing things to sell to support their drug habit or whatever. And and don't get me wrong, uh, I know that police agencies here in the region and, and well beyond are working very hard at getting to the core of these drug organizations because in many cases they are just that they're they're pretty sophisticated networks getting the drugs onto the streets and and we have even recently heard about some elements that have been dismantled but are those people who are part of those networks being penalized stiffly enough to discourage it and i think wes is getting on to something here why not much like the arsonist, the alleged arsonist, who's also now charged with an attempted murder, whether those drugs that you sell kill somebody 
later that same day, later that same week, later that same month, later that same year. Did you, were you not the conduit to that death ultimately? You know, Wes, you got me thinking. I'll tell you, I, I'll make you a deal here, Wes. I'll support your idea if you support mine too. How about that? And, and I think Wes makes a good point when it comes to the randomness, of course, of the impaired driver who tragically killed somebody else on the road, right? It's not as though it's, it's less personal. That drug dealer deals to person A, and later on, person A is dead. That's a pretty direct line there. The person that gets behind the wheel of a vehicle while impaired does not obviously have person A in mind. However, person A could be the victim, and I just it just doesn't sit well with me. It just doesn't sit well with me. And it's something that I've long had on my mind. And when I heard those charges out of Cambridge on the weekend, it made me think, yeah, you know what? I'll float that trial balloon again and find out what you think of it. Here's something else that's been in the news that really gave me pause. And I don't know if you heard about this. Thank goodness it wasn't here. But let's not forget, we do have a pretty high order transit system here. We spend a long time talking about the last mile when it comes to our transit operation. That last mile being the the distance from the bus or LRT stop to your home. How do we make that as easy as possible? And one of the things that our buses have been doing for years and we know our trains allow for as well is a bicycle being on board. And I bring this up because... Again, remember, we have the capability here. With the buses, there's those bike racks that are on the front. With the trains, the bikes can go in. And and what we have heard recently is of an e-bike fire aboard a subway car that has fire officials in Toronto saying, uh, we really need to be careful about these lithium-ion batteries and the risks they pose on board transit. How about this story just back in the fall, which happened in Toronto as well? A couple of e-bike batteries caught fire twice in the same month in the same building, and people end up getting injured over this. I recognize that the knee-jerk reaction to this will be, oh, Farwell's whizzing all over the bikes or the e-bikes. No, not the case. But what this did make me think about, and that was even before, like just do a Google search and and watch how many (laughs) results come up. When I heard of the recent one, my thought was this. We are in such a spot right now where we as policymakers, we as communities are so friggin' far behind the technology It's not even funny. Like the barn door is open and the horse, you can barely see it on the horizon. That's how far out of the barn the horse is right now. And I don't know how we're going to catch up. And I've been thinking about this around just the addition of these e-bikes to our roadways, right? I'm sure you've seen them too. These things clip along at a pretty good rate. Some of them, the more sophisticated, if you will, electric bikes or almost electric motorcycle scooter things. They they look like motorcycles. I have actually, at times, given the motorcyclists wave, you know, the little two fingers down to your side to say, hi, how you doing, to these 
electric scooters because I, I can't always tell the difference as we're going by one another, right? These things are everywhere. You don't need a license, right? So they're all over the roads or the sidewalks and trails. And I, I just, I think they're a little bit of a menace and, and we haven't created legislation to catch up to it because the technology is way ahead of us. Well, I'm, I'm going to add to that this problem, this issue that has been identified with the batteries on these e-bikes is another example of how we have let the technology get way ahead of our legislation. I'm all for it. Let's give people options other than personal vehicles. Cool. But now, I mean, and listen, if I'm going to if I'm going to be really honest with you here, and that's how I like to be. I like to be as honest as I can. No, I like to be straight up honest. So I'm going to give it to you straight. I, I think e-bikes are a little bit, uh, how do I put this delicately? Wussy. Sorry. Like, I, I'm a kid that used to ride a bike all the time. Do you know how I rode that bike? I pedaled the bike. I get it. We're all built differently. We're not the same. You might be going a whole lot further than I was. And trust me. 52-year-old Farwell is not riding like 22-year-old Farwell used to ride. But I'll tell you this much for free. When I get on a bicycle, I'm pedaling the damn thing. Whatever. We've got the e-assist. We've got the e-bikes. Cool. But we've got the lithium-ion batteries that are catching fire and putting people and property in danger. And I just, I'm like, well, okay, geniuses. Like, you wanted people to use alternate forms of transportation. Cool. Did you think about what those alternate forms might look like? Have these current problems with fires of these batteries given you pause? The legislation, I will say again, is so far behind the technology, I don't know how we catch up. But I'm here to tell you, we sure as hell better catch up. Because these sorts of things are going to continue happening when it's largely an unregulated market. I heard an expert talking about this very thing on another radio show yesterday. And he said, when somebody can just go online and get any e-bike from anywhere in the world via Amazon, we're not regulating the quality control in the creation or construction of that e-bike and the battery that's attached to it. Well, I think we'd better because if we don't, we're going to be putting, putting people in danger on public transit. We're going to be putting people in danger in the apartments where they live. Even if they don't themselves have an e-bike, we're going to be putting people in danger in their own homes because they don't recognize the fire hazard that these things are. I mean, come on with your coming on. Are we going to let the technology rule us or are we going to rein in the technology? There's room for some legislation or some legislative improvement here. Well, I don't even know about improvement. I think we just need some damn legislation as far as this is concerned. Ah, something else it's in the news caught my attention. Thought I'd share with you because I get the opportunity to do that. And during the 12 o'clock talk back, you can tell me what you think about what I think. Paul is on the phone with us. Hello, Paul. Hello. Such a long rant about uh, e-bikes and that. Uh, can I just point out that the majority of the components or the, uh, the entire assemblies are manufactured in uh, Trudeau's favorite country of China. <laughs> but what I want to talk about, <clears throat> pardon me, is something very important to the residents of 
Cambridge. You may recall the other week, uh, and you were willing to make a bet on this, whether or not there was going to be a spring election. But uh, here in the... I'll make you a bet on that. In the Cambridge riding, okay, I said, you know, that now's the time if you're interested in politics. In the Cambridge riding, nominations to represent Cambridge for the Conservative Party are closing on January 17th. A little early, in my opinion, for an election that shouldn't be uh, for another 18 months. But the nominations to run as a candidate for the conservative riding in Cambridge are closing on the 17th. And if you want to participate in the selection of the best candidate for the Cambridge riding, you have to have a membership, uh, a valid membership by 5 p.m. today. Today is a deadline. So any conservatives out there listening, Go online, check your membership, make sure that it's up to date, renew it before 5 p.m., or if you renew online, you actually have until 11.59 tonight to renew your membership and have your say in who is going to represent Cambridge in the next federal election whenever it should occur. It's not occurring in the spring. Do you want to make a bet? Come on, I'll bet you a beer at the fiddle, Polly. Let's go. Oh, you're on. You're on. Okay. You're on. Okay. But you have to show up to collect if uh, <laughs> if you win. Okay. Now we we got to set a deadline on this. When you say spring, spring, okay. I'll give you the entire season. There will not be a federal election before June twenty first. Okay, we're on. We're on. We're on. Okay. We're, we are on. I look forward to my cold beer at the fiddle. <laughs> and I look forward to it, too, when you pay for it. <laughs> All right, Paul, thank you. There you go. You can get in on the bet. Or you can decide, did you like Paul's two-minute rant about the nominations for the federal conservative candidate closing today? Or did you like my four-minute rant about the batteries on e-bikes? By the way, it's not just, I mean, the conservatives are getting it done by January 17th, as, as Paul just said. NDP's already picked their candidate for the next election, whenever the hell it's going to be. It's not going to be till 2025. Stop with your stopping here. It's not going to... I'm t- I'll tell you right now, okay, kids, uh, my opinion is there will not be an election this year, but I, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm buying Paula beer at the fiddle right down there on King Street in uh, Cambridge. Lisa, good afternoon. Welcome to the 12 good, o'clock talk back hour. Good, good afternoon. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You had a good little bit of time off. Oh, it was so good, Lisa. It was so good. Nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, about the, the Canadian juniors, but well, next year or next next time is another time. That's true. Um, I was listening to your rant about the e-bikes and the batteries, and uh, it made me think back to uh, telephone, uh, like cell phone batteries that started on fire and laptop batteries that started on fire that are lithium ion and and i mean if if they haven't perfected the technology for that for that stuff i'm not sure that we're ready to have it be in big automobiles that are out on the road you know i think they should oh go ahead sorry lisa i was gonna say i thought the same thing and obviously the batteries and the phones are so much smaller right but i don't i don't know why at scale there's there's such a danger but i think you make a good point and and the other thing too is like your regular car batteries 
I don't know if you've ever had to um, jumpstart or, or look at your connections or something, but there's a big warning on the batteries that we've had for how many years that say these things can explode if you're not careful. Um, not sure where the, the um, lithium-ion car batteries fall in that category, but, um, you know, there's a lot of danger to the stuff we've had around for years and years and years. And I've decided the first thing they should do before they start having us all in electric cars is bring back e-testing because, you know, I'm thinking that there was something weird going on with them taking away e-testing and then telling us all of our cars are polluting. You know, we, we no longer have to get, although if you have a CVOR on your vehicle, which we do on our work trucks, you have to get e-tested every year before you, you still have to play and you still have to get e-tested and so do the big trucks. So, you know, bring back e-testing, start having people make sure that their vehicles are not, you know, they don't have the, the controls disabled so that they can pollute more. And then worry about, you know, slowing down this new technology until it's ready. So that's my rant for the day. Well ranted, Lisa. Thanks for the call. Nice to hear from okay. you. Yeah, take care. Okay, bye-bye. It, it's kind of... The same point I'm making, right? Let's make sure that we have regulation in place before we so widely adopt the technology. And in the case of the e-bikes, that's just not there. I, I don't know what regulation governs it, if any. I, I, I think the answer is there is not any. So what are we doing here? And, and, and are we concerned about this at all? Or are we just, ah, it's just a fire over there. Ah, it's just a fire over there. Ah. And... When Lisa mentioned the caution may explode. Listen, we don't need any more concern around the batteries in our vehicles, okay? Because do you remember that time that I needed a boost to my old car here at the boardwalk and there was some guy just sitting in his car, so I went over and asked him if he would give me a boost and he wouldn't, and I couldn't believe this. Like, how could you not help your fellow human? And then I had all these people, oh, that's too dangerous. You can't just ground ground first. The black one goes first. Ground it anywhere on the ding-dang car. And then attach the positive. You see? Everything will be fine. This is your 12 o'clock talk back hour on the Mike Farwell Show. City News 570. Okay, I admit that it's it's hurting my brain a little bit, but I think I think I'm pretty close on the numbers. You remember the other day I was chatting about the size of government and we were talking about the property taxpayers alliance and the efficient and effective use of tax dollars and I pointed out at the time that the region of Waterloo as an entity is one of our top 5 employers by size one of the fifth largest one of the five largest employers in the region and and look i i get that government should be the source of some work i think sometimes it's the source of too much work and so i I brought that up and i said at every level right provincially i made reference to tim hudak and when he was conservative leader and the the word that got out or the story that got out that he was going to fire 100,000 civil servants. And then I just thought, like, let's just take a step back and think about that. If there were 100,000 that he thought we could fire in Ontario, 
How the hell many are there, are there overall, people on the public payroll? And then federally, and we know that the federal public payroll has been ballooning as well. I, I, I think maybe the, the Globe and Mail uh, was listening to the show on, I think that was, uh, I mean, just yesterday. Either way, the, the show earlier this week, because their main editorial yesterday talked about the ballooning size of the federal civil service. And, and I referenced that in my mini rant the other day and said, you know, this workforce, the federal public sector is growing even as we outsource more and more work and pay consultants billions of dollars. And the editorial made the same point, but it also got into the numbers. In the last eight years, we have hired more than 100,000 more federal civil servants. 100,000 more. It's an increase of 39% in the last eight years. I think we can do the math on who was in power until eight years ago and who's been in power in the past eight years. But if we're increasing the federal payroll by 100,000 employees, and that's a 39% jump, I'm pretty sure we've got the math now. Over 300,000 people work for the federal government. That's a wild number. That's a wild number. I know our population is growing too. But anyway, I, I thought I'd share that. I came across my radar, and I remember talking about it the other day. I thought, well, either the editorial board at the Globe and Mail is listening, or we're just on the same page as we enter 2024. 100,000 more federal government workers hired in the past eight years. It's a, it's a big number. It's a big number. Uh, we're coming up on 1 o'clock, and your update from the City News Center. Then, now you know, with Rob Snow is coming up. As I look ahead at our show tomorrow, did you know that we could be at risk of losing some provincial funding here in the region because we just don't have enough housing starts? We'll talk about that on the show tomorrow. How about the number of healthcare workers that say, I think I'm going to quit my job. I can't take this anymore. We'll talk about that. We're also going to debut a brand new segment that's going to be a regular segment on the show that I'm really looking forward to called Living Retired. So maybe you are retired and can relate or you like me look forward to one day being retired and we can learn a little bit about what it's like that'll be on the show tomorrow as well and lots lots more of course devin robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass my name is mike farwell back tomorrow morning at nine and at the rink tonight 6 35 pregame rangers and spirit bye for now